A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you weren't caught up with us. That would be through chapter 29 of Brandon Sanderson's The Hero of Ages. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words in Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers like We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I don't know about you, Crossland, but I am so thankful for like our little devil's cut that we record before every episode. Because you and I both came in with a funk. And mm-hmm. I feel like we're in a better mood now. <laughs> it's true. Recording it's that. It's true. We worked we work out the funk through either an icebreaker or sometimes ranting or like whatever we need to do. We always do it for like a half hour ish and always come out on the other side like good to go uh, more often than not. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm also very thankful that we have instituted this because I remember back in Red Rising and whatnot, especially in like Golden Sun Morningstar. I remember there being episodes that I would come in on and just be like kind of low energy and then like finally pull it up kind of in the mid to late part of the episode. And I remember that being a thing that we were contending with. And I think Mm -hmm. the devil's cut is such a clean way for us to get past that, which is really great. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Super cool. Works out. So today is our fourth episode discussing the hero of ages by Brandon Sanderson. And we are going to chat about chapters 21 through 29. But before we do that, PJ, what are you drinking? So I don't have a name for it. Because I have no idea what's in it, mostly. You and your fucking tiki bullshit. Well, I, I'm i clearing out my fridge, all right? Mm-hmm. So we did this, like, a couple punches for Kaylin's birthday in March. Mixed it all together at the end of the night, threw it in the freezer. I thawed it out, and I put it into mason jars and put them in my fridge. And now I'm out of freezer space or of fridge space. So I'm trying to go through it. So I actually did have to bolster it a little bit because it wasn't super fresh, you know, as far as like the fruit stuff goes. So I added some extra lemon juice and some extra pineapple juice to it, threw it into the flash blender and then topped it with crushed ice and a float of overproof rum. So... It's a lot of different like syrups and fruit juices and fruit syrups and, or did I say fruit syrups, rum? I don't know. It's a lot of stuff all smashed together. Smooshed. Smooshed. It's tasty. But what I am actually more prepared to talk about, I guess, because I know the name of it and I know what it is, is my beer for today. My back half beer. Chuggy Chuggers from Drecker Brewing Company. I think I might have had it on the show a little while back, but a live, laugh lager. It's just a nice, unassuming lager, very crisp, very clean. Pilsner malt, carafoam, and corn. So not not a whole lot going on as far as complexity goes, but very, very well done. Hmm. Okay. Who, who buy? Drecker. Drecker. Oh, it's a Drecker. Live, laugh, logger. Hmm. Yep. Seems very Dreckerish. Amazing. Yep. Yep. I I see it. I see the whole thing. That's great. Sounds. I mean, is it tasty? Is it good? I mean, it's a logger. 
Cool. Oh boy. So I am having a cocktail that I had yesterday. I had it yesterday. It was really tasty yesterday. So I decided to have it on the show today. We were doing some work on some Tales of Kano stuff yesterday, and so I brought a cocktail to do our live listen-through of the second episode before we published everything. And so I made it, and I was like, oh, this is pretty tasty. I was kind of doing some pre-work for the first time in a long time. It was the first time I had drank since the last time we recorded, and so I made it. It's called the Sawyer. The Sawyer is two ounces of gin, a half ounce of lime juice, half ounce of simple juice, 14 dashes of Angostura bitters, seven dashes of Peychaud's, and seven dashes of orange. Now... I knew that we were going to be recording a podcast on the longest section of the book. I'm not expecting it to be the longest episode, knock on all kinds of wood. But I was like, you know what, I'm just going to I'm going to make a double. So as I was constructing mine, you know, that means 28 dashes of Angostura bitters. I ran out on dash 10. I have a different brand of bitters that claims to be very similar. And I mixed the two. And boy, howdy, does this not taste harmonious compared to how delicious it was yesterday. It's certainly speaking a very like fruity and complex cocktail without being like overbearing. That's why I liked it so much is like it had a lot of the complexity that I like in some other, you know, very complex like maraschino green chartreuse cocktails without all of the some of the astringent flavors. It's very approachable. I think it's really good for people to drink if they want to try something complex that isn't like complex tasting that isn't challenging. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, However, I'm, don't I'm swap curious. your angos. Yeah. yeah. You played yourself by making it the day before. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Right. <laughs> and then making it a double. Because that's four ounces of gin. Yep. <laughs> Just in a glass. Uh-huh. But 14 dashes of ang. Any idea volume-wise what that gets up to? Is it like half an ounce? At that point, I think we're close to half an ounce. Yeah, I think we I think Educated Barflies, who I got the recipe from, he originally claims it from a bar in New York. It's a it's a short that you can watch on YouTube. It's really great instructional on how to make this thing really easy, of course, as described. But I believe he says it's about a quarter ounce at 14. So at eight at 28, one would assume about a half ounce. Gotcha. So, yeah. I've made so, crazier things with way more bitters. I mean, like Scorpion's Tails, I think, or Scorpion's something or other. Scorpion Bite, I think, is a two-ounce Angostura bitter cocktail with tequila that I made once, which was really tasty. It is very bitey, as one would expect. But yeah, yeah this, is, this is really good. On the back half beer, I, I'm just drinking a, a little small boy here. I had it last week, the Edwards Teach, Teach or Devil Sun IPA. Having it again because I'm not buying beer if I'm going to be gone for three weeks. I don't need to stock my fridge with stuff. So yeah, uh, I think I have one more beer in my fridge right now. Wow. That's wild. Just right? one. Just one. Like including all of your bombers. No, my bombers aren't in my, aren't in my fridge right now. Okay, got it. All right. I was like, wow, that'd be crazy. But just one beer in your fridge. Crazy. Cool. All right. Cool. Before we talk about the chapters, PJ, how do you feel about this week's reading? Thoughts? That's a good question. Like my, you my overall feeling? Week. I know. Yeah. I feel like you're choosing sections that have very specific feeling themes. And I don't know if that's just kind of the ebb and flow of the book in general or you're doing it intentionally, but I feel invigorated and inspired by a lot of it. Hmm. Yeah. A, How so? Well, we get Vin kind of flexing her muscles a little bit as a Mistborn. We get mm-hmm. Ellen 
absolutely flexing his muscles as like a newly found leader and emperor. We get Spook coming into his own. We get Sazed like I don't know, not flopping being... around like a dead fish. Well, but he's yeah. not a yeah. He's not I'm as scared. much of a depressed asshole as he has been. I, that's most of our perspectives this week, and none of them are super sad, and none of them are like super upset for the most part. Like, it feels like a lull, but it also feels like an empowering lull, in a way, emotionally. <clears throat> yeah, this is a week that. I, thank you, A, for the compliment on the top of of talking about and bringing this up. I think I I think I've done a pretty good job of breaking up this book better than some other books that we've read previously in particular because i kind of knew when well I, i've read it so but now I'm, I'm getting better at this continually as we continue to do the show and so capturing some of these arcs and feelings i think is kind of my target to give us a cohesive thing to talk about all at once what guides some of that is a combination of logbook and tonal feels right because this has those kind of two components of the story so I want to make sure that like one doesn't necessarily outstep the other at any moment and, and kind of whatnot to create a balance here in terms of what we're what we're listening. And obviously, that's really easy with the way that Brian Sanderson's broken it up because he often doesn't create those conflicts naturally, right. avoids them. So, yeah. yeah, well, you're doing a good job. So keep it up. Tanks with that. Let's get into the we'll get into the breakdown with that. We go into chapter 21. Our chapter here starts on a grateful note. Demu has survived. He was a part of the 15 percent that were hit but did not die. And this has left Vin very contemplative about the nature of the mists, the deepness and her previous experience with them. She's fixated on solving this puzzle, decoding the riddle to be something different than just the new empire's knife. You know, it's it's giving her this different kind of sense of purpose in the moment. She feels like she's making a breakthrough when she leaps to conversation with Ellen regarding, excuse me, Vin feels like she's making a breakthrough when she leaps up in the middle of a conversation with Ellen regarding the rules of allomancy. The first rule being that of consequences, and she's clearly trying to work out the mist's consequences and actions. After all, there's always another secret. All right, so just to be clear, when I ask what are the rules, this isn't the rules that I'm talking about. But, I mean, I appreciate that some rules are being the, This fed is the to rule that, that she's chasing this down, you know what I mean? Like, she she's chasing about. this down. Yeah. Yeah, this is the one that she cares about. I do appreciate that the there's always another secret tagline is coming back now that mm -hmm. Kelsier is kind of being reintroduced into the story in a less than memory facility, you know, like through spook. Do you mean more than memory? Or yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> That's exactly what I mean. I don't know, I said less. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to start. Yeah. So I, it feels appropriate, and I think intentionally so, that he's on our minds coming from Spook's perspective of, like, seeing Kelsier mm -hmm. and jumping to this. So I I had, was it Ziva who suggested the name? There's always another er, another secret for my bar mm -hmm. way back when. Yeah, I'm thinking on the inside of the bar, I might write it like on so the there's back always side. another secret on the back, on the side, back of the side of the bar, like inside of the closet. That would be very funny because if someone else got this house eventually, <laughs> because people very, very rarely live in their houses until they die or the same house or what have you. 
so when you guys eventually sell this house, I think every most people live in whatever house they are until they die. That's not true. A lot, not most not people like die while living in a like house. Empty. Oh yes, yes, but not their first house, right? So like people move, I think on average like three or four times in their life or something. Like in their adult lives, they buy like two to three houses or something like that since the eighties. So the point being is that this likely isn't your final house, and so in the top there, inscribing that is great because this will probably end up being some kid's room down the road, you know. And so they'll be like in their closet, hanging their clothes up, or like sitting down because they're like dejected, leaning against the wall, and they'll look up. And we'll see there, there's always another secret in like block lettering. And they'll be like, what the fuck is that? And then they'll tear down the walls. Ah, they'll tear down the walls. They'll find the secret bottles of rum that I've hidden in there and maybe die. Because I don't know how time, this but, theoretical yeah. kid is. I mean, fair, fair point. That's pretty. We painted a pretty grim picture here. But I believe I believe in you, kiddo. You kiddo at home that's going to find that secret rum in the walls. I believe in you. All right. Find this episode of the podcast that explains your life state. And and please, if you're, if you're listening don't tear to this down and you walls. buy PJ's house, don't tear down the walls. There's not There's rum no there. rum. The rum is gone. It's always been gone. Mm-hmm. All told, which is, you know, telling. Mm-hmm. The conversation, though, that kind of spreads out from there as, as they have this conversation moves in a very different direction from discovering the mist and kind of talking about that. Instead, they talk about sort of the state of the empire as it were and and the empire before specifically they start around the beatings in an attempt to snap noblemen and children and it's a very brutal conversation talking about sort of the mistings in the way but ellen's practicality again steps up to bat as he's been contemplating the lord ruler's actions more and more as well as coming to understand him we, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks kind of recurringly is this idea that he's as this person that is almost supremely in charge, he's beginning to feel more and more in line, not necessarily in line, but more of a mind with the Lord Ruler's policies and kind of understanding why not condoning them and but not exactly condemning all of them, despite making right. like this one illegal, for instance. And lamenting that, mm-hmm. lamenting the, the fact that he made it illegal. Because like this, this is the best philosophical argument I could have asked for when I was a freshman in college the first time. We're going through like utilitarianism, all that kind of stuff. Like this, this is the moral quandary that I feel like we should have been debating. Because it's the blown out of proportion. When are we ever going to see that? come to come to fruition and like why should we care about this argument anyway because it's never gonna like really matter in life this is why it would this is the exact situation where it would matter and i think having that framed would have been perfect for like a a discussion as a yeah this this touches on this book in particular touches on especially through ellen a lot of like hobbesian and kantian logic in terms of the sort of absolutism in the way that like do you especially as we start to talk about and we'll we'll probably do this more as we talk about the cities themselves but as you talk about the way that these three different cities really operate within the kingdom because that's if nothing else the city does or this book does a very good job it does a lot of other things i don't know why i said if nothing else this book does a very good job of a number of things one of them is presenting three different versions of a rebel uprising after the downfall of a government 
And we kind of mm-hmm. get to see three very different scenarios between Luthadel, of which we pretty much explored for the entirety of last book, and then Urto and Fadrix. So I'm very excited to talk more about that throughout the episode because it is kind of this question, this these philosophical questions of of empire and leadership, of individual sovereignty, of negotiation, of differing politics within cities and kind of the feudal state of things. It's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's well done. I mean, I think it that's is. one of the other things that it's it's tough to it's tough to argue against because or not tough to argue against. It's not often highlighted because it doesn't the cities are there to further the plot. But if you look a little bit further, you can start to see the like economic systems and some of the real differences and kind of nuances that Brandon's kind of trying to pick at in terms of how different systems could work. So, yeah how logically they would work but specifically as we we talk about like the beatings and talk about the lord ruler thoughts there that i hadn't thought about at all how they would find alamancers as noble people like I, it never crossed my mind so that revelation of these beatings when they came of age at a certain point was it blindsided me a little bit but i'm wondering how effective it actually is there are obviously situations that people get into that don't snap them, even if they do have allomantic abilities. Like, I wonder how often that happened. And if anybody who didn't snap was subjected to it again. I don't think so, because I think Ellen would have said something about that here. But I feel like that maybe would have been effective or useful. Or do they have it down to a science of like how close to death they have to get before snapping? I don't know if it's a science. I assume there's a th- probably a threshold that they try to like adhere to to some degree more than anything else. But that's that's guesswork at that point. The thing the thing that I just want to bring up is this is originally brought up in the Final Empire. This is not a full not a full oh, really? blindside. Yeah, this it's originally presented in the Final Empire that that's how they snap their children. And that some don't survive. I believe you. I just don't remember that. Yeah. And another thing is cited here. I'm 90% sure. Anyway, we, we can cut around that and make it work either way. I'll, I'll double check in my thing. I double checked so many things in the original book because there are a lot of payoffs to small things in this book from the original book that I had to pull up. But needless to say. Cool. Yeah. I, I mean, it is. It's a great detail to like talk about snapping and talk about the way that these noble families are influenced. And then to also think through like the power structure Fadrix, right? Because Fadrix is almost completely depleted of Alamancers because a lot of them were brought with set to like siege Luthadel and were, mm-hmm. were kind of given up in that one gambit to uh, take down Elend during the, during the wall of Ascension. So the cost, like the human cost and the like trauma cost of these, of these attempts to snap these children is so egregious and great. You can also see why someone who has a particular sociopathy might bend themselves to like being similar to Straff and being like, okay, well, I want to ensure my survival. I'm going to go through and bed as many women to have as many chances to have these kids and then put them through rigorously. That way I create a dominant line. It's gross, of course, and it's awful. And we talked about that a lot with Straff, but you can see, especially within this context why why that makes sense well especially considering that the familial structure 
at that point is moot anyway. Like it's it's mm-hmm. a bastard child that doesn't fucking matter. So why not treat it like a farm from that respect? If your entire power structure as a nobleman is based on the number of alamancers you have, and you don't give a shit about bastards to begin with. Well, and the I, human cost. I, I That's the other it. part of this that you well, can't rule out. Either. Of course yeah, he yeah. doesn't care about that. Right. Right. They don't think of the ska as the same species. Right. Right. I'm just, just <laughs> clarifying for this. <laughs> no, I, making I, sure I, that get, I get it. Yeah. I get that, but even that kind of, and maybe that's the point. Maybe that's where that originates from. Well, not quite. Not quite. Because we get a logbook entry here that says that they were effectively different, maybe not species, but they were different enough that like the noble people were smarter and stronger and bigger, and the ska were... Just more hardy and stockier. And more and less fertile. And, and more fertile. Yeah. Yeah. And then just inbreeding kind of drowned out the actual differences. But I'm wondering if that had anything to do with the way that they thought of each other as like different species, or if that was something instilled in them to try to make it easier to do something like what's drafted. And how prevalent that line of thinking was beyond just draft. Yeah, and I think that's the tough part to measure, right? Like, it's it's hard to kind of understand, and I don't think we really have a picture of it being any further than just draft, because the other part of this is the risk of the Lord Ruler coming down on you, right, and catching you, as we saw Vin's father be held accountable in the first book for Vin. Right, and I think this is the reason why. Mm-hmm. Not just the idea of keeping them separate, but the idea of not farming the ska for Alamancer children. And do you think he came up with that on his own or he had to quell something and then decided to make a rule after the fact in the last like 900 years? That's a great question. (laughs) I, yeah, chances are good. I definitely want to talk more about the history of the Lord Ruler because there are some fascinating things that come in here, especially the idea that it took him like a century to get the empire together. I think is a really fun story Mm -hmm. bit because it's almost like, you know, I don't need a prequel by any means and do not need to be sold a prequel because I kind of get it through the logbooks anyway and I can piece it all together and don't need more than that. But it does make you like think about the way that those first hundred years were handled from like a perspective of, okay, so he's got like multiple generals that he's going through. He's got these like elemancers that are super powered to like help him take over the world. Like there's, there's a lot of fun, fun bits there to explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'd take a, I'd take a prequel. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't take one. I'm just saying I don't need one. I don't you know need what I mean? it. You're right. Yeah. 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 It's not necessary, but mm-hmm. if you're doling out prequels, toss one this way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It could be done in a single book too, I think. I don't think it would need to be anything else more than that. So to wrap up the chapter here, we're introduced to Nordin, an obligator and scholar of whom provides us with some factoids and numbers relating to the deaths in the mists, as well as those afflicted. After some questions from Vin trying to pick at the numbers, Nordin realizes that the number is precisely 16% across the board, no matter where you look. Even within like single people digits at different points where he's like, yeah, you add one more person to this and that number would go up by one. It would be perfect. The question here for you, PJ, though, and I guess technically for both you and Vin, is why is that the number? One for every metal. Okay. I've got 14, and I'm sure missing some. 16. That's, that's all I got. 
They do make a big deal out of four out of every 25 as opposed to 16 out of every 100, but probably because it's easier to, it's more useful to count 25 people and like see interactions of groups of 25 people that go out. So Mm -hmm. I didn't think too much of that, but that's the only thing that came to my mind as far as that number specifically. Yeah, maybe maybe it's like as opposed to a baker's dozen, it's like a mist's 25, you know? Like a misty 25, a deepness 25. That's never going to happen. So <laughs> You're not going to make that one work. <laughs> obviously, making this a prediction. But thinking thinking down your, your line of theorizing a little bit here, why 16? I mean, so you're saying that you're imagining that there's more metals. Why is that number important then? You didn't ask me that question. I'm not prepared. No, I just did, though. This nope. is separate. Nope. You're, nope. It doesn't need to be appended onto the prediction. This is just a thought. Just an experiment. I think that's where the mists get their power, by draining the life force out of people. And that power gets converted into allomancy. Interesting. Because there is an action and a consequence. Mm-hmm. And we've got, like, what is it, hemallergy? Why not slurgy? Spear allergy. Spear allergy. <laughs> I do want to at the very least make mention that it is specified near the beginning of the book in one of the logbooks that there are three metallic arts, right? Of which yeah, we now know. Spirit, spirit, blood. It's spirit blood, not like normal blood. It's same. It's it's the same. I don't know. All right. Fair. Well, fair no, enough. no, no. I guess here's my here's my thought. This is the source of the allomantic power. So allomancy is fed by the the spirits of the people that are touched by the mists. So it's the same art, the same yeah. alamant- same metal based magic art of allomancy. All right. With that, we go into chapter <laughs> twenty two. Chapter twenty two. Here we have the logbook. The beads of metal found at the well, the beads that made men into mistborn, were the reason why Alamancers used to be more powerful. Those first mistborn were as Ellen Venture became, possessing a primal power, which was then passed down through the lines of nobility, weakening a bit with each generation. The Lord Ruler was one of those ancient Alamancers, his power pure and unadulterated by time and breeding. That is part of why he was so mighty compared to other Mistborn, though admittedly his ability to mix ferrochemy and allomancy was what produced many of his most spectacular abilities. Still, it is interesting to me that one of his divine powers, his essential allomantic strength, was something every one of the original nine allomancers possessed. Only nine of them, huh? And now ten with Elend or whoever else ate one of the nuggies in the, in the time. Either way. We get a little bit of an answer regarding something we brought up last week of Spawn, to a certain extent. Those who ate a nugget were able to pass on that power genetically. So, we still don't know if Vin and Ellen would be guaranteed to have a Mistborn child. But we do know that there is a genetic precedence to Ellen passing on his traits. Yes, yes. And so it's been diluted over time as it's kind of moved down. We we can't guarantee it, but at the very least we know the dilution happens over each well, level, we, pretty much. I guess it proves that it's possible. Like he's not just outside of the genetic mistborn pool. He's a new source of it. Beyond Right. Right. And a more powerful line in theory than the current existing. A brand new one. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, to, to tag into that, I, I think that it's also fascinating that there are like nine original Alamancers because the Lord Ruler is one of them and then one for each of the eight medals, right? Which feels the original eight that I think is specified a little bit later, but it feels very ring wraithy. You know what I mean? I absolutely, like, yeah. absolutely wanted to bring that up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not to say that each one only had one power. They were all Mistborn, but it is, you know, uh, mm-hmm. definitely very ring wraithy. Yeah. Yeah. So. <sighs> yep. Okay, cool. With that, we move into the rest of the chapter here. Really just one thing to talk about here, and that is Sazed at the Pits of Hathstone. He finds himself in an odd position, that of being selected this leader of the terrorist people who are in a really kind of pitiful state. He also discovers something about the terrorist It seems that only the Ska are affected by the metal, by the mists themselves. What do you make of this entire chapter as we think about the interaction between, say, the terrorist people and, you know, the mists at large? So it seems really weird, first and foremost, like, hmm, why could that be? But at the same time, throughout the entire, like, series, throughout the entire trilogy, the terrorist people in the logbooks have been heralded as this, like, cosmically important group of people. And then that gets kind of thrown to the wayside a little bit. Maybe through changes of the prophecies through Ruin, but maybe... Hmm. Maybe it was just misread in the beginning, or maybe that was the changes and it wasn't actually important. And it all gets like really fucky and ambiguous in the second book when we realize nothing can be trusted anyway. So Mm -hmm. this kind of brings that back a little bit and makes me really think more about like, who are the terrorist people and why are they important? And what does that mean to the story as a whole going forward? So I have no answers. And I don't know what's going on. I mean, reasonable to to claim something like that. I, you know, it, it's very tough to to make a call at this point in the story. And I'm I'm not necessarily anticipating that. But but thinking about even where where says it's at with these people, I think is is fascinating, right? Especially as he approaches the group and like the way that he he's having these conversations with these people of whom, like you're saying, they are kind of cosmically important. They seem as though they are kind of a a chosen people of sorts based on the Mm. prophecies be it maybe potentially before manipulation it seems at the hands of ruin or or what have you but there is kind of a perpetual question here that's now asked and and as such these chosen people are are stuck with like their last choice of leader you know what i mean yeah but (laughs) They don't seem upset about it. It's not that they're upset. It's kind of that, like, Sazed's a little bit upset. Sazed <laughs> like, is just a sad boy, as we've talked about. I do Nobody wanna, wants to be amend- the last pick on the list. <laughs> well, he's first pick now. I want to amend my answer a little bit and feed into what I previously said mm-hmm. about Allomancy being fed by spirit, like, the misfeeding on spirits of Ska to produce alamancy i don't know i can make that more concise at some point if i really think about it and make a prediction or claim but just that sort of idea and why the terrorist people aren't affected by it and that's because they're the people that have barricamy so it is a different separate magic system they don't hold the alamantic spirit in their blood so or not blood, spirit. They don't hold the element. Gene, capability, presence. Yeah. 
essence. That's good. <laughs> so that's why they are immune to the mists. The mists are like, nah, you can't do anything with that shit. All right. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Sweet. With that, we go to chapter 23. Chapter 23. We have another logbook here. Fuck. I didn't pull it up ahead of time. One second. During the early days of Kelsier's original plan, I remember how much he confused us all with his mysterious 11th medal. He claimed that there were legends of a mystical medal that would let one slay the Lord Ruler, and that Kelsier himself had located that medal through intense research. Nobody really knew what Kelsier did in the years between his escape from the pits of Hathson and his return to Luthadel. When pressed, he simply said that he had been in the West. Somehow in his wanderings, he discovered the stories that no keeper had ever heard. Most of the crew didn't know what to make of the legends he spoke of. This might have been the first seed that made even his oldest friends begin to question his leadership. Did he talk about being in the West during any of the during the Final Empire? I think he said in during his travels, and I think the city that he came from was technically from the Northwest, like the city that he burns in the prologue. Right, but like... What what they're talking about in this logbook entry doesn't feel expounded upon during the first book. Not crazily. Hmm. There's a lot of citations here. I don't know. I I don't really. Either way, I don't have a whole lot to elaborate on. But sure, everything makes me think. So you know, it'll all come together. I'm sure, and then I'll miss everything, and you'll laugh at me. I do that anyway. So that's that's not going to change, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited. I, one of the things that we are eventually going to get to read here that you may recognize the title of is a short story called The Eleventh Battle, which feels like... Think it's related? May, maybe it's related. Maybe it's about some weird Western Western story. Hmm. Hmm. Could be, could be fun. It's going to be a really quick, breezy read. I think it's like a 4,000 word short story. So don't get your hopes up. It's like two chapters, but it is, it is still a good time. So we will read that. All right. But needless to say, you know, I, I really love this chapter, chapter 23. I think it's such a great chapter because it focuses on spook and is written almost entirely divorced of the style and voice we've heard from Branderson thus far. The story is kind of told in this other perspective, and it's the story of Spook, his father, his mother, and his uncle Clubs. And I just, I love this entire chapter from front to back. Again, it's it's a short one, but it's so enjoyable. So this perspective was definitely different, but I really liked it. It was presented as a memory or a dream. Which was it? Memory or dream? I can't remember. It's kind of somewhere in between because he keeps kind yeah. of like waking himself up out of it. Right. And that's what I really appreciated about it in that it wasn't like just a straight up flashback because that immersion is being broken by Spook, like reminding us that we're in the present and he's just thinking about or dreaming about the, the past. But at the same time, it makes me question whether or not it's true. Hmm. Not, not, not whether or not it's true, but whether or not how much of it can be trusted. But then it no, never mind. Your thoughts are safe from ruin. Yeah. I'm just thinking of how we can loud. be spoiled. Like how can things get spoiled? <laughs> how can it be uh, ruined? Yeah. Yeah. So never mind. We're good. It could have been a flashback. It would have been fine. Nothing would have changed. We're all good. Yeah. But I, I think the intercut is an excuse to explain to us 
that this isn't just a flashback and to keep us grounded, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. What would you make of Spook's dad and mom and like the culture at the time? They were a little bit aggressive about the fact, like, presumably they are fearing for their own lives because he has shown allomantic abilities. That's the presumption here. I was because they don't say explicitly that he was like that they're fearing what he is and that it would all come back to them. Well, they yeah, I mean they're dodging around it, right? Like they yeah. don't want to talk about it. But right. on top of that, the <laughs> the weird part of that to me is like are they actually his mom and father? Like because he has elementic capabilities, is that his dad? Is 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 it not his dad? Well, it's probably not his dad. I don't think it's his dad. Yeah. Or there's a chance that they were both like survived like noble ska lines and then like they remerged and and as such had a kid that had elementic capabilities you know like it it doesn't need i think that this story kind of precludes the need to say that it has to be noble as long as there's some noble blood in the mix yeah i'd be really curious to see we talked about it last week the pundit squares i really want to know like elemancy actually works into genetics and the probabilities of everything it's more likely that that's not actually his father and that maybe gives reason to why he's so aggressive with him because he's wrestling with the fact that that's not his son, potentially. There's a whole lot of feelings that this could be coming from. But yeah, I think that's his mother and the man that his mother is married to. It poses a question. It's a, it's a, real, it's a real question. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he's also, like, Spook is named after his dad. His real name is Jadal. And so... They they share a name, and he denies it and goes with the street slang name. Is also another like step away from his father in his own way. Well, he witnessed his father preparing to turn him over to. Yeah, his father's piece of shit too. Like bad dad, <laughs> like, bad dads, bad dads. Brandon Sanderson very clearly is a problem with fathers. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The argument that got him to not just do that was the fact that mm-hmm. he would also probably get killed in the process so you know is that really a good reason to to like redeem someone no i don't think so no right yeah i'd agree Mm -hmm. a kind of final note in this chapter is that the story you know being being told from this distant narrator perspective is that we get an explanation of spook's real full name real as as he claimed it to be his real name and so it is listabornes right that we've been saying this whole time means in eastern street slang or rather is lefting i'm born in eastern street slang and that means i've been abandoned fuck why the fuck would you tell us that now dude like (laughs) just let it be a funny other culture name that we get to giggle at because we can't pronounce it properly and leave it at that. No, no explanation. It's fine. It makes me sad. Yeah, it's it's a very sad revelation for a number of reasons. And it it's just unfortunate because it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, we're, we're giggling at, you know, his name because it seems so different than everyone else's at the time and just feels very out there as opposed to the regular names. And then sort of the really sad origin of that as he was kind of explaining to everyone that he met along the way if they could speak his language that he's been abandoned he's been i've been abandoned and that's what he was just saying to every 
it's just so it's tragic. It's truly tragic. It's, it's uplifting within the same section because he rejects that yes. name. Right. When when talking to Sazed, I think the last chapter of this section mm-hmm. and says, just call me spook. Yeah, I I think the other really important thing there is to say that he's abandoning this I'm abandoned name when he feels like That's he's been brought in the crew by by Kelsier. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like he's yeah. Yeah. When he's given that nickname, it's a big deal for him. He he doesn't feel alone. And the other important thing there is to say that Kelsier is the only one who in the original crew understood Eastern street slang. So when he heard Lester Bornes, he knew that it meant That's... I'm abandoned. And so he gave him the nickname not because it was a complex name and because it was too funky donkey. He was he was poking at it for everyone else's sake. He was giving him a different name because he knew that it was a bad name. I can believe that, and I'd like to believe that. But at the same time, there were several situations where the entire crew faked understanding Eastern street slang to fuck with Breeze, I think. So, yeah. but that was, was he faking it? it. Well, and Vin and yeah, I think Ham and yeah. I think maybe clubs. I can't remember. Dachshund. Like most of them were like jumping in on that, and I'll be perfectly honest. I think it was the same. I don't think that there was anything unintelligible said by any of them because all of it was unintelligible. I guess. I mean, my, my point. My point is, is there anything that actually says that he understood the street slang and was able to actually converse with him? Or was he good at like... Yeah, he talks directly to him. He does. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that's then, when yes. everyone else joins in kind of jokingly. But it's, gotcha. it's Kelsier actually knowing. Gotcha. 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 Okay. It's been a while since I've read yeah, that. Yeah. No, no worries. No worries. It's been the same amount of time for me. I just remember. Yeah. You've got a brain or something. <laughs> I've read it twice at the very least, so we can give credit there. But yeah, so I I pulled that out. That's one of the things that I pulled out this time in this reread is like, oh, this the nickname is much more than a nickname. It's an acknowledgement of him as a person in his own right as well, because like he gave himself like a, a very tragic name. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it was meant to be a name? Like, do you a think statement he... as a name? Yeah. Like a, yeah. Poor guy. Yeah. Or spook. But any other thoughts on this chapter besides fuck his parents and good for clubs like clubs shines in this chapter as well. That's the other thing that this does is this gives us in such a small section gives us so much of clubs character as a person. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm also curious how he knew how he knew about what about spook. The mom informed him. Gotcha. Yeah, because Jadal blames her and says, I knew you would call him and blah, blah, blah. So like right. the mom is kind of showing a little bit of mercy, which then doubles back on my theory of is this maybe not his kid, especially with how mean and awful he is? No, I don't think so. I, I think yeah. it's probably not to rehash it a little bit, but it's a not his kid. And I think that revelation is the reason why he's being so aggressive here. I think so. I think that all feeds yeah. into it. Yeah, but I don't know if there's maybe a word of Brandon that clarifies to solidify that out there. I haven't looked. So and that's, again, not something we're doing right now. So cool. All right. 
Mm. With that, we go into chapter 24. We've got our logbook here. I now believe that Kelsier's stories, legends, and prophecies about the 11th metal were fabricated by Ruin. Kelsier was looking for a way to kill the Lord Ruler and Ruin, ever subtle, provided a way. That secret was indeed crucial. Kelsier's 11th metal provided the very clue we needed to defeat the Lord Ruler. However, even in this, we were manipulated. The Lord Ruler's the Lord Ruler knew Ruin's goals and would never have been re- Lord Ruler knew Ruin's goals and would never have released him from the Well of Ascension. So, Ruin needed other pawns, and for that to happen, the Lord Ruler needed to die. Even our greatest victories, victory was shaped by Ruin's subtle fingers. I bit my tongue, like, literally three minutes ago, and now I can't speak. So, sure, blame that. Cool. We made it through this. So, I think we talked about this last week to a certain extent. Yes. Yeah. And... Like, I absolutely believe it to true. I absolutely believe it to be true, but I hadn't... Did you bite your tongue? No, I'm just an idiot. Okay, um, all right. I hadn't <laughs> even considered the idea of Kelsier being under the influence of Ruin as well. And that's a real fun extrapolation that's going to unravel a lot of stuff. <clears throat> Do you remember that prediction I made you make? Mm, no. All the way back, it was like about whether or not like Kelsier fucked everything up. Um, do you think he potentially fucked everything up? <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> you said you didn't think he did. <laughs> All right. And this is beginning to lay out the potential for him to have fucked it up. I'm not saying that that's holistic, yeah. but I am giggling because I'm well, like everybody to always has the potential of fucking everything up. Right. Right. <laughs> yep. Just yep, in yep, a yep. general sense. Mm-hmm. No, very true. Yeah, you can always you can always burn down bridges, even sometimes on accident. So you know, there's another short chapter here with Tensoon giving us more background on the blessings and what's going on in Tensoon's mind and what exactly he's fighting for here. Kind of the the state of like is he is he fighting for Contra Kind? Is he fighting for his, his survival? Is he fighting to have this mass suicide occur? what what exactly like he's he's kind of working through all of his objectives at once in his head what do you make of this and and like also i forgot to mention his relationship with milan i think is a really important thing that he he talks about in here too and kind of like just in a brief section like the hope and ah there's so much so much yeah i don't think he's necessarily fighting for the mass suicide clause unless he but we don't we don't know the wording of it and I'm curious to think that the wording would only make it apply to true believers of the contract or something like that. Something that would basically just force the, the seconds and nobody, and maybe the fifths hmm. to kill themselves. But I don't know about that. We'll see. I, I want the, I want the words before I make that call. Oh, maybe something like that. But I don't, I, he's, he cares about his people very clearly and does not want to see their society fall or their, mm-hmm. like, he doesn't want to see Chondra kind be destroyed in any sense. So I don't think on a grand scale that mass suicide clause is something that he's seeking out. But at the same time, like, I don't know, <laughs> like, what is, what is his plan here? We get, I don't fucking know. <laughs> Escape. Yeah. I guess. But. We get a lot of background on the, not a ton, but we get a little bit more background on the Mistwraiths and 
I'm I'm just looking forward to learning more about the blessings with the mistress or I I guess not explicit. Ah, fuck. I'm just stumbling over all of my like thoughts here. So we we learn more about blessings or at the very least are exposed to more blessing conversation. We know it connects to the mistress. We feel like it connects to the inquisitors and there is just a black hole of missing information that's going to hopefully fill in a lot for me, but that's yet to be seen. I really liked the commentary on how Chandra, when they're in human form, don't get sores or blisters because they can just form new like skin around the, <laughs> the wounds. That's something that I never would have even considered as a writer when creating a world like this. Like, how do Chandra deal with blisters? Hmm. Well, they don't. <laughs> Next question. Yeah. I don't know. This this is a very short chapter that just vaguely touches on a lot of stuff. Yeah. It it makes like a really fun reference to to this and so being incapable of doing certain things because he's like low on body fat, I guess, <laughs> you know, like so he has to eat more flesh so that he could make more stuff or like how how does that work as well? There there's some good questions there for sure about some like definitions in terms of what what exactly could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, ten soon. Oh, ten soon. And man, Varcel shows up with a new body that the Conjure plan on breaking as part of the public execution that he's about to be a part of. We find it's a body we're familiar with, that of the wolfhound. He's got to pick up those bones and turn himself into a dog again, of which, you know, he's he's very comfortable in and was kind of, you know, yeah. Anyway, Tensoon has finally found his way to escape which is very interesting i think because he's he's talked about being loyal and standing there but now that he's figured out that the trial is a farce he's kind of out on the idea because he thinks that he can do more good elsewhere yeah that's a sneaky move though and like him hamming it up with milan in last week's reading i really i found it odd how Mm -hmm. like obtuse he was about it but it all comes together it all comes together probably pretty quickly for most people. But for me, it was a long time to stew on it because <laughs> that was just a couple chapters ago, right? Yes. Yeah. So. Right. It was just a couple of <laughs> chapters. I was trying to think of whether or not it was like a week or two ago. Yeah. It was relatively recent. I think it was like maybe the last or second to last chapter last week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a quick turn. So this is one of those situations that you threw me into oftentimes in red rising and i felt like less so in here because it there's so many more things going on but Mm -hmm. like just me stewing on something on a cliffhanger that for most people wasn't a cliffhanger (laughs) right right and that is kind of that's one of the things about this book that i think is is really our our format is both good for a number of reasons because it lets us like sit and break things down. But this book, man, is like momentum the book because like their every thread is like twisting together in into like a a cohort, like a convenient pattern that knits a full scarf. And so to break it down in this week by week section, we basically get another segment that slowly ka chunk ka chunk ka chunk turns as we make our way through the story. So like 
each week is kind of just a turn like a I, i'm just swinging that allen ranch back and then cranking it up again and swinging it back and cranking it up until we get to the end and then the monkey toy is going to go off and clap his symbols together and we're all going to be happy and get serotonin it's a reward <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's not that bad <laughs> but can i trade this for dopamine <laughs> i can we can we, yes we can we can trade for dopamine that's fine yes 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 we can we can do that one res- what what's one receptor if not you know just a, a commodity <laughs> yeah right i mean if well, we want to get in we can common, talk about pharmaceuticals we can get into a whole conversation there mm-hmm. real quick i have to take off my sweatshirt and then we'll go into yeah. 25 yeah one of these times i'm just going to come back with something that's like super offensive to you like fuck pj and his fucking mustache or something i don't think i got any like really good pictures of me with that mustache by the way i think i took I might, a screenshot i'll have to double check did you i might have taken mm. one and it was terrible so i didn't share mm. it let me see gotcha yep all right it's going to you good it's work. right after i shave. i think with your forehead clipped it's funny or some for some reason you don't even fit in a mirror <laughs> selfie how funny is that I think it's very funny. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. All right. With that, we move on from 10 soon for the week, and we'll get back to him next week on Words and Whiskey. That was my finger gun noise. The ka-ka-ka-ka. So with that, we move into chapter 25. And of course, we've got a log book entry here. What? Uh, What? You're shocked? You're surprised? We got five more log book entries to go this week, kids. Actually, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, okay, five. All right. The balance. Is it real? We've almost forgotten this little bit of lore. The Ska used to talk about it before the collapse. Philosophers discussed it a great deal in the third and fourth centuries, but by Kelsier's time, it was mostly a forgotten topic. But it was real. There was a physiological difference between Ska and nobility. When the Lord Ruler altered mankind to make them more capable of dealing with ash, he changed other things as well. Some groups of people, the noblemen, were created to be less fertile, but taller, stronger, and more intelligent. Others, the Ska, were made to be shorter, hardier, and to have many children. The changes were slight, however, and after a thousand years of interbreeding, the differences had largely been erased. Hmm. So we we addressed this a little bit. I would like to bring I would like to bring notice back to the the term the balance and the yin yang thing that we've been talking about the last few weeks. It doesn't feel super appropriate here based on that text, but I don't know, it's still a balance and maybe maybe applicable somehow. Everything devolves into ruin and preservation or something. I don't know. Which one's ruin and which one's preservation if we're pitting the nobleman versus the uh, ska? Ooh, that's <laughs> that's delicious. I don't know. Ultimately, the ska are the ones that ruined the society. So is that is that a thing? No, it's not. No, <laughs> no definitely not. Okay. That, nothing, nothing else there, my boy? That we've nothing that we haven't already mentioned in the last couple chapters. Sure. Okay. Right? Yeah, I I would almost for me you're for sure right. We we talked at length kind of about the genealogical differences and kind of our our thoughts in the interbreeding and how that changed over time. The one thing that I maybe wanted to bring up here is kind of a what ifism, and this is less of a this is less of anything else, but this is more of just a, a thought experiment. If the Lord Ruler would have picked up the power again, do you think he might have redivided the people? That's a very good question. Huh. Also, 
it's it's making me think about the fact that he's doing all of this right after like grabbing the power from the well and kind of being a racist asshole piece of shit right but was that before or after the nine alamancer like the nine original alamancers were chosen or whatever oh i think that comes later for sure that comes later okay so that that divide wasn't forged around the current mistborn no i don't think so i think not necessarily and the reason is if he were to do this again i think he'd spend most of his time getting the world placement right as opposed to because because everything else every other decision including separating them was a result of him having to like scramble to make sure the world doesn't fucking die and that civilization can continue so getting the world in the right position so it's not going to overheat and doesn't need ash falling all over the place and doesn't need like super hardy plants that are difficult to harvest and therefore requires hardy stocky people that are super fertile so they can like create just deposable people to like sustain the entirety of society like it's all a chain reaction from that single first decision so i think if he were to get that right on a second attempt, he wouldn't need to do that to the people. Yeah. That, I mean, ultimately, I, I think that totally makes sense. It was really just a hypothetical to explore. But I, I think you're right. I think ultimately the first thing that he would focus on, no longer being a novice with the power, would be to adjust the worlds that were, it were in place correctly and then to work his way down and kind of reblend as much as possible, I think. I think there's still a part of him that likely resents the clinium people and so would likely still hold the lower class i don't think that that is that maybe that's waned with time we don't really get to know the lord ruler at age that well but ultimately part of me feels like that is what he does to the the clenny as he turns them into ska so what's the race of the people that become noblemen it's not terrorist people and clenium and terrorists are the only like regions that we know of so i don't know i don't know Either, man, if I look at dancing, schlan. I don't know, schlan sound like. <laughs> what? It's not. 55. Schwiggity schwump. Schwifty, schwifty, schwifty five. My IQ, schwifty five. Whatever, whenever I say something dumb, I default to schwifty five. Whenever I say a word that's stupid. Oh man, that animation is burned into my brain. Anyway, so we start this week by arriving. We don't start this week. By God, why did I put that in the notes at this point? We start this week. No, we start this chapter by arriving at Ash Weathersets' home town of Fadrick City in the pers- in the perspective of Elland, and we're preparing for something familiar as an option potentially a siege. Set brings up an interesting point that we get multiple perspectives on over this week, and something we interrogated last book over the last book quite a bit. That. Every obligator with half a mind or ambitious individual would try to roll their own little fiefdoms. And throughout this book, we kind of talked about this earlier, but we get to compare these three cases between Luthadel, Fadrix, and Urto. There is something that I was really meaning to bring up earlier, and that is I had always assumed that tattoos around the obligator's eyes were something mm-hmm. magical or something like imbued or something important, but... I think the Lord Ruler just like face tats. I think so too. Yeah. It it feels very... Go ahead. 
they don't seem to mean anything other than maybe station. Because I think they yeah. they get more elaborate the higher somebody got within the sect or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It it reminds me of that bit from We Crashed where Adam Newman's talking about the Mandarin, right? And this idea that it's this person who has to go through all these rigorous studies to become this like position underneath the empire emperor that's this really big deal. But in reality, they're basically just a hype man that has no ability to do anything despite all of their certifications. And it's kind of what obligators feel like, <laughs> you know, like they kind of feel like just really big hype men that don't have any abilities. <laughs> yep. 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 It's, I don't know. Yeah. I'm still confused by the obligators in general and what they're strengths are other than just kind of vaguely religious bureaucrat so like even even having exposure to them in this section doesn't really give me a whole lot of extra information yeah yeah definitely i i totally agree and i think that that's one of the the things about this where it's like the the great detail that I think that we are getting is a lot of kind of surrounding details around the how do I put this the like institutions that surround these groups like we're we're getting more about other cantons for instance we get the buildings which at the very least gives us a sense of scale and decoration even for the way that some of these these things come together but it doesn't give us like the soul of what an obligator is which is why I think that Norden having him in even just for that brief moment is like. He's just a fucking nerd. Like, he's just an accountant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a hard time thinking about them as anything but nerds. You know, they're accountants. Yeah. In the best way? Like, because they like it? I don't know. Like, at the very least, they like that job. So. They were, they're accountants, they're notaries, they're lawyers, they're mm-hmm. somehow involved in the actual, like, bureaucratic process. Yeah. Which never made sense to me. I don't know what their actual station is beyond what they did at like Well, they're balls. also like lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. But but they also distribute resources, like they're in charge of agreements yeah. for things like the shipping agreement that happens in the beginning of the first book and making sure basically all the, the lords beat their ska enough <laughs> genuinely. Gen- genuinely in, in kind of a terrible way, but yeah. Did you have any thoughts? I know we talked earlier about kind of the the division of the cities, but I want to kind of open this up now that we've seen all three of them. Did you have any thoughts on comparing the three and the way that they've gone through rebellions and uprisings and the like? I feel like I'm missing scale to a certain extent. Okay. Um, Especially with Luthadel. Because... What do you mean? I know it's this giant, vast city. Giant fucking city. And... That description gets lost to me a little bit. It feels smaller because of our scope and how like how we follow our, our heroes through it. And I think to a lesser extent, the same is true for all of these. And I, 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 I completely understand that this is my problem in the way that I like visualize things and don't visualize things. Because like I I I don't know, I just don't put myself in like a physical map of the area effectively enough to really understand how big the place is and i'm trying i'm trying to do better about it but regardless that's more physical they do have very stark differences in the way that the people reacted with Fadrix. yeah sorry Fadrix city mm-hmm. seems to be primarily noblemen at least in what we interact with here whereas urto is 
have eradicated the noblemen. <laughs> and Luthadel <laughs> right. has become this place of actual change, like directed change. Mm-hmm. Because because it's being heralded by people from many different backgrounds. So I, I guess it's kind of an example of for Luthadel, it's it's this how would you I, I don't know how to describe it beyond that. But I like I know what I want to say. I know what I want to convey. I just can't think of the words, and I don't think I'll find anything more concise than what I've already said. Okay, yeah. So. I, I I want to real quickly at the very least say that I don't blame you for not necessarily having great great visualization on these. I think that that is. I I don't want to say it's a it's a deficit, but I don't think it's a focus of Sanderson's to to focus really on creating massive vistas necessarily like that's not the goal in the mistborn series at the very least as it stands more often than not it's it's that more personal trauma character stories magic that's that's kind of the focus of the thing the only there are only a couple of things that i think really get the vista focus in different moments and that includes like critic shaw and you know stuff stuff like that that get like a lot of attention kind of give you an idea of all of the spires and the way that there's the round dome in the middle and then the pooping room. And, you know, you get, you get the idea of the way that the whole city comes together or you get the, you get the idea of that way the critic shot comes together. I think Fadrix is better described than some other cities are. Urto, Urto is great. I, I think that even the description between the two cities is enough that you get an idea of how it could look but mm-hmm. not so much to like place yourself there and like really get an idea of a layout. You know what I mean? I liked and mm-hmm. its descriptions through the street size. slots and yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Even scale on that is crazy. Saying that like three barges could be like it could be three barges wide, I think is what they said at one point. Something like that. Yeah. Like that's a huge fucking <laughs> street. You know? Mm-hmm. Like if that's your street. That's so big. <laughs> well, yeah, because it was originally a canal, you know. So yeah, yeah, I know, but but yes, now now it's that feels bigger than a canal. Yeah, right, and like right, right. bigger than a road. That's several blocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so. it's large. Yeah, a slot, you know, and that's why I kind of like that description of this like really deep ravine. Uh, mm-hmm. Leads to very interesting de- geography, and then I get kind of from the description of Fadrix, I kind of get a like pueblo vibe like a on the plateau you got short houses with flat roofs i'm not saying full like stone hut like heated stone hut like pueblo houses are but something in kind of a similar shorter shorter flat style like the southwestern u.s would have yeah Yeah, i could see that yeah or most of the middle east you know it's kind of the same i i don't imagine the exact same climate but i do imagine that being kind of the description of like with flat roofs, because there's no need to block. You're not dealing with snow, I guess, although you are dealing with ash accumulation. So that doesn't seem to be the smartest thing to me as I was thinking about these layouts with the uh, Adrix in particular. So, yeah, you know, that's each each the run. Well, I don't think they were thinking about that when they set up the city. Well, at least not to the degree that they're experiencing. <laughs> like, yeah, right. They were probably OK with it before. But especially because they had people to, I don't know, command to take care of it. True. Yeah. There were, there were people <laughs> to boss around literal slaves, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. so set ever the optimist, though, attempts to dash Ellen's hope by bringing some realism of what to expect in the city into the picture. He says, 
You've been chasing a puzzle left by the Lord Ruler for the better part of a year, Elend. Hasn't it occurred to you that the man was a sadist? There's no secret, no magical way out of this. I just love the way that that, like, bites in the right way. That it's like, this is, this is fucking reality, dude. Like, he has a good point. Mm-hmm. Like, personally, I think he's wrong. But I think it's really important to have some dissenting opinions and some reality checks in, his, in Ellen's ranks. Mm-hmm. And through this entire conversation, I, I think I'm really beginning to warm up to set a little bit more as a person and as yeah. a character. More than I expected, at least. Like I, I didn't hate him like I still hate Alrian, but I did not <laughs> like him that much, and I'm starting to like him better. Yes. Yeah. I hate that you did. <laughs> you just ditched that joke on all Rianne so fast that I can't even like go back to try to try to focus on it. But I'll just leave that grenade there and I'll let it lie because we aren't really talking about all Rianne that much this week. But I do agree with you on the front of set. Like he is he is a very fun he, he he's a very fun character and it's great because he does bring a diverse voice. It feels like he is a <clears throat> if we think about the original crew dynamics, there feels like there's even some personality overlap that happens between individuals. And so that he kind of fears feels like something that was even missing from the original group. Almost, yeah. Yeah. But what role would he have played there? And I don't think he could have worked in the original crew. I, I'm being not saying, like a straight up nobleman. But trying to like if you were to say, All right, Seth's joining the the crew in the final empire. What role does he play? Assuming that they're all okay with him being like a nobleman. I'm not I'm not saying that for sure. I'm just saying that he he has a diverse enough tone that I feel like there wasn't as much diversity of tone among a lot of the members of the original crew. Um, which is why I also think that like recasting Dachshund, for instance, or clubs as female makes a ton of sense. So uh, and this, it, this wasn't like like me pushing back on you. I I'm yeah. genuinely curious. What would you have him like what role would you slot him into if you had to put uh, him into that? I'm here, I'm he, he would, he would have a similar role in my head to 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 well, I think he feels a different role. He's more strategic. He's he's more he's the most similar to Kelsier. He would feel more like a right hand. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's less charismatic, but he, he does fill the same kind of like leadership gap, I think. I think he's the dissenting he opinion. News like place. Oh yeah. That's a good call. And then and then or sewer would be elsewhere. I don't know what. Freed up. Yeah. Maybe another Wolfhound. Another position in, or another person in Vin's position, mm. being kind of a, a young, what would that be called? A socialite. Socialite. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, I got you off track. Sorry. No, I, I, I think I agree with you. I was, I was just saying that, like, my, my thought was more the tonal difference that he brings i think would have been welcome in the final empire i don't know that he has a place on the team you know yeah. within reason i think he'd be redundant for the most part so yeah yeah i agree i i think i think you're not wrong and where he would fit either but i do i do like that tonal difference and that's something that i feel like was missing from the original group and that it's great to see brandon kind of realize and add in here to have this very different tonal approach mm. and it feels like his character voice is have become more distinct as we've been reading these books as well they have very much so after set gets angry about the potential 
Is this a good transition? Who transitions away from things? I'm so excited to talk about this next bit. After Sets gets angry about the potential of not receiving his city and kingdom back, Ellen pushes back in a moment that would make even Tindwell very proud of how he's changed. He says... You did not team up with me. You knelt before me, offering up oaths of service in exchange for not getting executed. Now, I appreciate your allegiance, and I will see you rewarded with a kingdom to rule under me. However, you don't get to choose where that kingdom is, nor when I will grant it. Set replies, Damn, boy, you've changed a lot in the years since I've known you. And Ellen replies, So everyone is fond of telling me. And I'm very fond of of telling Ellen that he's changed over the intervening year. But you know, I what what were your what were your thoughts about this quote? I'm I just love this little exchange. I'm absolutely with you there. I think this is a comment that makes everybody proud, or at least most people within like the story, including you and me. But Tindwell, Set, Ellen himself, probably Vin to a certain extent, maybe not. But mm-hmm. like he he is becoming exactly who he needs to be in order to like make this work and is it's exactly what set respects it's exactly what tindwell was going for it's exactly what ellen feels like he needs so Mm -hmm. it's perfect like it is i don't know i don't know it's perfect i loved it i got chills when i read it it's it's pretty ideal for ellen like it's it's a big deal and it really shows the way that he's kind of wrapped all of this together, right? Like the way that he's kind of wrapped both sides of himself and his training, his teaching, and the way that he's he has changed over the intervening year together. And at the same time, I think Set's also proud of him because I think that Set, you know, has kind of been, in a weird way, kind of a father figure for Ellen in like a political sense, in like a strange growing up, forcing him to grow up sense because... It, that's kind of his role in the well of ascension is kind of pushing him to change. And now he gets kind of be, he gets kind of on look at the person that was shaped by his actions. Not necessarily a good father, just like, you know, but it's something. Yeah. Yeah. That instigator of change. It's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the chapter ends with Vin taking off on her own into the city, counting Ellen as the liability in the stealth operation that she that needs to be pulled off partially because of his scent, um, which I find very funny. <laughs> like, no, no, you smell like a nobleman. Well, t- don't you? Uh, yeah, but I know how to hide it. Like <laughs> you smell like an emperor. A uh, dear blunt Vin. What a mm-hmm. great way to sum that up. Mm-hmm. No, she, I mean, she's being a little bit funny about it and a little bit sarcastic about it, but I think she appreciates her free time and not free time, her solitary time. And uh, is just kind of fucking with him a little bit. So mm-hmm. it was fun. Yeah, it it is. It is very fun. I adore it. Dear Blunt Finn. So with that, we move into chapter 26. Fucking didn't pull it up again. I am only just we have the logbook here, of course. I am only just beginning to understand the brilliance of the Lord Ruler's cultural synthesis. One of the benefits afforded by being both immortal and, for all relevant purposes, omnipotent was direct and effective influence on the evolution of the final empire. He was able to take elements from a dozen different cultures and apply them to his new perfect society. For instance, the architectural brilliance of the Kleni builders is manifest in the keeps that the high nobility construct. Kleni fashion sense, suits for the gentlemen, gowns for the ladies, is another thing the Lord Ruler decided to appropriate. 
I suspect that despite his hatred of the Kaleni people, of whom Elendi was one, Rashik had a deep-seated envy of them as well. The terrorists of the time were pastoral herdsmen and the Kaleni-cultured cosmopolitans. However ironic, it is logical that Rashik's new empire would mimic the high culture of the people he hated. You know what's really frustrating about this logbook? Hmm. All the alliterations? Mm, well... <laughs> no, I didn't have to read it out loud, so that didn't bother me. What's frustrating is we get a lot of commentary on Kalenium and the Kaleni people, mm-hmm. a little bit on Saris people. So those are the two cultures that we know, but also it mentions that he took elements from a dozen different cultures and we know nothing about any of the others, including names or general existence. Like We just know there's a dozen different cultures that he borrowed things from. And we still only learn about the two that we already knew about. Yeah, I, I think he makes mention of, is it the Kazi or the Kanzi in the next logbook? Um, yeah, that's, that rings a bell. Yeah, so, something like that. Or in at the very least before the end of this week, uh, he mentions a couple of other ones that are like, there are some things from. But you are right, ultimately. I think that this is something that, again, has been erased with time and isn't immediately, prov- like, despite this clearly... If we if we think about for a moment the perspective of whoever's writing this, there's a little bit of like maybe omnipotency here because so, they're able to pull out these histories. I'm chalking that up right now in in my own head. I'm chalking up that up to the fact that they are the hero of ages, self-proclaimed, and are had experience taking up the power of the well. So maybe that information was given to them through that time frame while they had the power, whatever it was. That's what I'm chalking it up to. Yeah. So I'm like hand waving okay. it away at this point to make yeah, it less. Yeah. It's, it's communicated yeah. through the power in some way through, through the holder. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. All right. That, I mean, that makes sense to me. And I, I think totally, I kind of fits well. So, all right. Sorry, I realized that I was scrolling down looking for that and I moved away from the chapter. You know, we we start this book, we we move to Spook's perspective here. And every time in each one of these books, I've been paying particular attention to whenever the book has said survived. I pay just that extra bit of attention as it almost feels like Kelsier becomes a focus in the backdrop. It's this idea of the survivor. It's this idea of the church. It's this religion. It's this thing that he just is. It's it's omnipresent as everyone feels and thinks it and especially those that i think were around the survivor and spook i think especially is kind of penetrated by that idea of surviving that's that's kind of deep within him in his little one room lair he hides from a likely bounty that's been placed on his head spook is somehow now using two metals something that isn't elementically possible according to the rules as we know them and that has kept him alive it's it's helped him survive in this moment keeping him from the fire and allowing for him to numb pain that might have otherwise pushed him over the edge. Kelsier points to the tip of the man's sword in him when he is looking to pull it out or potentially considering it and says that it's a sign of his survival and that he should keep it in as that sign and in kind of that sort of same way holistically that it's so important in the text. It feels like it's reiterated here, except for he doesn't point exactly because he isn't here. He's more of a, a spirit voice something different 
Yeah. So a few different comments, one of which is something that'll probably read a few times if, the, if something like this keeps happening. And that's that this gives off very much the God vibes that Zane had experienced. Mm. But now we're seeing it through a different lens and with a different character, one that we recognize. But I do not like the interaction here where the spirit tells him to like not take out the tip of the sword that's embedded in him. It just feels too, it feels very much like Chekhov's gun in that it's this sharp embedded piece of metal that will go completely unnoticed by Alamancers, but this pewter enhanced sad boy will be able to retrieve without harm. Like it, it just feels very set up, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like at some point he's going to pull it out and stab someone with it. Is that what you're thinking? Or throw it up for Vin to, like, push. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Sure. Sure. Something. Yeah, you're getting you're getting Chekhov's gun vibes. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Good on you for, you know, adapting your vocabulary and adding and growing as a reader, PJ. You know what? Talking about thematic language. <laughs> I, did, I didn't mean for that to be so condescending. Apologies to everyone who calls me condescending every once in a while. It was more, it was much more of a compliment than you assume and not meant to be condescending at all. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it negatively. Sure. I swear. Okay. I, I no, it's, it's genuinely like really cool to see. You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, cool. I said, you know, 10 times inside of the space of that while I was awkwardly running through everything. So Spook's mm-hmm. mind leaves that behind and moves on to more pressing, something more pressing and immediate. That of the more citizen pressing and the than Stark. a sword in his chest. Well, I'm talking about the spirit <laughs> talking to him more or less. The sword is fine. It's just it might get infected. Who knows? It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about that. It's not. That's not an urgent problem. That's a tomorrow problem. If I don't die today, you know, I'm going to live until tomorrow. It's not a good, it's not a good life saying, but it is a life saying, I guess. Die today, maybe tomorrow. I'll live until tomorrow <laughs> or or something. I, I feel like or something is the, the right way. Getting back to it. Spook's mind leaves that moment behind. He kind of vacates his mind and empties his brain as he thinks about the other things that are important on things that are more pressing and immediate than a spirit talking to him and a sword lodged in his chest. (laughs) A sword tip, I guess. That of the citizen and the stark differences between the leadership styles of him and the Lord Ruler, of course. And one of those things being, of course, this tavern that's open. This would never be a thing before because A, the Scar are afraid and B, the Lord Ruler tries to keep people inside so that they are not affected by the they're, they're, they don't go out in the mists. It's restrictive. It prevents them from being outside during those times. Hell, there's even a tavern open selling drinks at night. And, you know, cheers to that. That's cheers. it. That's a drink. We haven't we haven't had a drink in a long time. Yeah. Brandon doesn't talk about drinking very often. He did in the first book often. Like it was it was a good amount. It was, it was once a, a week times. at least. It was a few times. You're right. Because every time the group got together, they had wine. Yeah. Anyway, point being. So cheers to that. We find our boy heading to the bar and drinking a House Venture special vintage wine, going for 600 boxings a bottle. And that's pretty significant considering the little scheme at the beginning of Mistborn, the Final Empire. Vin and Cayman were pulling, had an advance of 3,000. That was absurd money. So the fact that this bottle of wine that costs 600 is then being sold to Spook for three, pretty obtuse. Not only that, he's burning pewter, and so he's not getting drunk while he's drinking it. So he's not, mm-hmm. e- is he enjoying it? Is, like, is he having a good time? Is he doing the thing? 
he seemed happy that he could like he didn't seem upset that he wasn't getting drunk no because it was another ability to him like it's a new right. thing that he yeah right and he's not upset more, i'm more upset of a social him. thing you know well, yeah. yeah that's fair but more of a social thing where he can kind of blend in but it, it's something that will allow him to blend in better and right. be even more invisible yes as just another dude drinking at the bar so and it, i mean we say bar but this is as far as i can tell it's just like an empty lot next to an alleyway that had a bunch of like crates for people to sit on like it's not a building i think it's outdoors no i think it is an indoor building it's it's indoor i'm pretty pretty darn positive that it's indoor he's detecting things that are outside cuz he's a he's a little pewter bastard tin bastard not pewter I could have sworn he talks about how it's not really a bar. So, this okay, is... here's here here it is. The Harrows was clogged with a disorderly mash of wood and cloth and bodies. Shacks leaned against shacks. Buildings leaned precariously against earth and rock. And the entire mess piled on top of itself, creeping up the canal walls towards the dark sky above. Here and there, people slept under only a dirty sheet stretched between two bits of urban flotsam. Their millennium-old fear of the mist giving way before simple necessity. So that's the description of the area person could walk up down the street at midnight and find a small tavern opening so he moved inside so he moved inside pulled okay. cl- pulled tight there was no proper bar just a group of dirty men sitting around a dugout fire pit in the ground so like it's a building with a fire pit in the middle <laughs> okay that's why yeah that's that's the description that i was thinking of <laughs> got it got it got it yeah yeah yeah, and that's why I think the loose description of a tavern makes more sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's very loose. Um, yeah, I yeah, I really go ahead. No, 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 sorry. No, I was I was just gonna say I really love the way that this whole scene goes down, right? He's mm-hmm. he's sitting there drinking the beer and he's just like kind of listening into everything around him, which I think is fascinating and it's it's a great thing from his perspective. At this point, is he tin deprived? There's one point this week that he's tin deprived, and I was having a hard try- time remembering where that is. I don't. Is it remember here that. that he's not burning tin, or is it later? No, he leans into the tin here. He's listening to yeah, everybody's I think he conversations. Does. You know what it is? It's it is prior. It's during the flashback sequence when we cut out of his perspective. He is out of tin, and he is feeling things and sensing things extrasensory, despite being deprived of the metal. So, like, his senses have also been extended. I wanted to bring that up. I forgot about bringing it up earlier. It's totally in that chapter where he's out of tin, but he is feeling and hearing more than an average person would. Okay. I don't remember that. I'll have to go back and look again. But unless I'm crazy. That's interesting. It's an interesting prospect. I could be crazy. You could be crazy. I feel like this scene gives us a little reminder about pewter and how it's not entirely about strength Uh but dexterity as well because he's able to like pull off that that little bottle by the or the the cork out of the bottle by the nub which is definitely feet more than just strong man pull cork like it's definitely some finesse some dexterity to that some finesse yeah so it was subtle but a nice little reminder and then when he breaks the bottle and catches the pieces like that's the other part that like gets me. Yeah, it, it's it's that moment when I got it as like 
the bottle started to shatter, but like the label was holding it together because it didn't actually like shatter, but it started to no, crack. But he broke it and then caught the pieces. I thought no, he, he caught I thought the he... bottle. He broke it, but it didn't. He was able to stop it before it fully shattered, and then he caught the bottle that he dropped. Got it. I thought it was the pieces. Mm. Now we have to look this up because <laughs> I thought it was a weird way to describe like breaking, but not actually breaking a bottle. So the bottle. So. Okay. Smells of wine, bodies, ash, and mold hung in the air. Spook could feel the very grain in the stool beneath him, despite his clothing, the movements of the people throughout the building, shuffling and vibrating in the ground beneath his feet. And with all of this pewter burned inside of him, he flared it and made it strong alongside his tin. The bottle cracked in his hand, his fingers pressing too hard, though he released it quickly enough to keep it from shattering. It fell toward the floor, and he snatched it from the air with his other hand, the arm moving with a blurring quickness. So... He does catch the bottle. He mostly breaks it. Yeah, but he doesn't crumble it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. For Which, some reason, I got the picture that he shattered it and then was like catching the pieces. <laughs> That's a cooler, a cooler image, but not not as real. <laughs> also, I that was the re- like I like dropping a bottle and then catching it. Why are people freaking out about it? Like, why would people like make that of note? I fucking do that shit all the time on accident. <laughs> Especially while drinking, you know? Uh, I, I didn't get the feeling that they, like, freaked out over that. And it was more like it drew attention to him. And right. then they, like, noticed who he was. Sure. That's fair point. Because he did come in with a cloak. He was he very much played the part of Aragorn in Fellowship. Where he's <laughs> the strange man walking in with the cloak. Except for he's a 17, 18-year-old boy. Yeah. What, uh, Strider. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All of the Lord of the Rings references today. We talked about Golem. <laughs> we talked about. We made several Lord of the Rings references. Is all I'm saying. Does yep. Golem have a penis? All right. So, I think he still, does. But um, is it as elongated as his arms and legs are? Got that idea that he just stretched. <laughs> well, he's got the like really kind of exaggeratedly long limbs. This is why we're an R-rated show, folks. Yeah, we don't earn it that often, I feel like, lately. No, we do. Well, yeah, I mean, we haven't been pushed to, I guess. It's kind of... <laughs> this series is much more like PG-13 than Red Rising was. Red Rising verges into R often, I think, with violence mm-hmm. and other things like that. But you do raise a fair point. I, I think that it's kind of like a... Long loincloth, man. <laughs> it also has a really knob... That's exactly where I was going with that. Like... <laughs> With with that side note locked firmly into my brain for the rest of my life, I'm going to try to continue with the show. So Spook reflects on clubs having saved him and provided him with this new life, this new opportunity, and also where he stood in the crew feeling useless. He looks up at the filth in the gutters and whispers, I just want to be able to help. And Kelsier, Kelsier whispers back from the top of the skyscraper, no just kidding that's watchman but he does say you can be great like i was and like kind of is encouraging as opposed to a little bit he doesn't go full rorschach but god damn it did i not feel rorschach in that moment when i was reading that this time i was just like i don't know that's that's what compelled me to put this joke in because i was like Mm -hmm. it feels very watchman-esque imagine if ghostly kelsier was a dismissive dick to spook like that though it would be pretty awful. How shitty would that have been for him? Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been really bad. Especially with the amount of, like, passion that Spook has for Kelsier. That'd be the worst. 
Yeah. 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 It would have absolutely ruined him. Absolutely mm-hmm. ruined him. But right now I'm thinking less it, like more and the more and more this goes on, the less I'm thinking that this is actually Kelsier and the more I'm thinking he's being taken advantage of by ruin. But it's fair. I don't it's know. Fair. But the chapter ends with Spook fleeing the bar into the night having revealed himself and or been revealed like we were saying from the bottle drop that happens earlier in the shattering it's it's not exactly something that it's so he's almost in his own way he's kind of creating his own mystery or he's becoming this mysterious figure that's running from place to place and i'm not saying that he's batman or daredevil but i'm saying there's some analogies there (laughs) that spook is going on with them right now yeah it's it's kind of shitty that he got clocked but Mm-hmm. At least he's being revered, you know, like he's not being yeah. like, oh, my God, go get him. It's like, hey, look at that guy. Like, I saw him get murdered today. But what this does bring up is who the fuck is Dern and uh, why does he know who Spook really is? That's all I'm thinking about. Well, so Dern, we know we know Dern from the previous interaction last week. No, I know. I know. I mean, okay. I mean, why does he know who Spook is? Because it's mentioned here that Dern t- says that he was one of the crew members of the Survivor, and that's something that Spook never told him. Something that Spook never told Dern, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Positing. Without talking about Dern too much here, but to like think about a couple of things within reason. Whoa. I just totally connected something. I need to write this down. Shit. I can't write it down in that notebook. It's got to be in the other notebook. Sorry, I have multiple... No, it's going you go out. grab it. I'm this... gonna find this. No, 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 I don't. I don't need. I did find it, but I, I got fucked up by it. Like just, I was just validated in the best way. I came up with my entire theory without fully reading the entire thing, the entire page, and then I hit the end, which generally is trivia on the pages, which includes like words of brand and stuff like that. And my question was raffled by Brandon, <laughs> meaning that. It's likely. And and that he's not going to reveal more details at the time. Fucking yeah. All right. I feel very good about the way that my brain just connected a bunch of things at once inside of this nerdy universe that you're you're just on the cusp of. So Well, should I for the sake of Yes, the, yes. Uh, for the sake of Yeah, for the sake of the audio, the connect, audio. <laughs> connect these moments. Yes, yes, yes. Dern's been talking about him, the voice continued. He said he was one of the survivors' own crew. Dern's so he has so he does know who I really am. Why has he been telling people my secrets? I thought he was more careful than that. Hmm. Hmm. There is always the option that he's not actually hearing a real person. Sure. And it's something is sowing distrust in his mind. Yeah. That seems like a reasonable thing based on what's been happening to him lately. Specifically, like ruin is making him abandon trust in anybody that he's been spending time with by like making them seem like they're telling his secrets. That's, that's fair. I I think that there's something to be said though, that like spook doesn't even really trust Dern when we meet him. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't, in love yeah, with but he's the spending idea time with him. Some in any, he, he feels like his, any More information anybody he else? gives, any information that he gives to Dern, he's worried will go to someone else though, too, at the same time. Like he's worried about the, the sort of suffusion of information year to year to year, the telephone game. Yeah. But isn't this just confirming that suspicion, even though he never actually told him that information, 
he now will never tell him anything. He's sure. never going to work with Dern because he doesn't trust him anymore. He needs more information. But but that does leave Dern in a precarious place. At the very least, as we, as we approach this, like Dern is spreading news about him, so it appears, right? That's what I'm saying. Maybe yeah. that's not true at all. And that is just right. something supplanted into Spook's mind. How far do you think that rabbit hole goes? All the way down. All the way down. <laughs> full, full red bill. <laughs> All right. Cool. All right. We got, we, got some, we got some questions. We got some answers. We don't have any answers, actually. This book is nothing but questions <laughs> at this point. So with that, we go into chapter 27. We've got our logbook here. Yes, Rashik made good. What's up? The long book. They're all so long in this book. In the previous book, they're like a paragraph, maybe a couple of lines, a couple of sentences. Here, almost each of them are two paragraphs. Most of them are three. Like, unfortunately, I've committed to this format, but and it feels like it's important because we talk about everything that's mentioned inside. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't feel bad about it. But at the same time, it's like it's so much each time. If. If you're out of beer or if you want to grab a beer, feel free. I'm just going to read the logbook because we have our two and a half longest chapters to go. Well, one long chapter and then two shorties. Yes. Rashik made good use. God damn it. Logbook. Yes. Rashik made good use of his enemy's culture in developing the final empire. Yet other elements of imperial culture were a complete contract. Were a complete con. That has to be contrast. Did I copy this wrong somehow? 27, right? Yes, Rashik made good use of his enemy's culture in developing the final empire, yet other elements of imperial culture were a complete contrast to Kalenium and society. The lives of the Scot were modeled after the slave people of the Kanzi. The Terra stewards resembled the servants, the servant class of Bertan, which Rashik conquered relatively late in his first century of life. The imperial religion with its obligators actually appears to have arisen from the bureaucratic mercantile system of the Halant, a people who were very focused on weights, measures, and permissions. The fact that the Lord Ruler would base his church on a financial institution shows, in my opinion, that he worried less about the true faith in his followers and more about stability, loyalty, and quantifiable measures of devotion. I find this really, really interesting in, in part, partly because of our other keepers within the story and the way that they've focused in on different subject matters very deeply, right? We've got Sazed, of course, who is deeply within religions. We have Tindwell, who's deeply within biographies. We can imagine some others holding very specific pieces of knowledge for a very long time and, and very deeply and reverently going through them. And as such, Rashik being like almost the keeper of culture in a really fucked up way is a really interesting dynamic to approach there because he's it's like cultural acquisition right like he is he's acquired he's supplanting he is grabbing it all taking it for himself and stripping everyone else of it it is true fusion of culture and diffusion away from the people who actually should have control over it yeah i don't know it's such an interesting dynamic the world is my copper mind. That's a great call. That's a great call. Yep. So we do get a bunch of the names of different groups of people that I was mentioning before. Where I'm like, where are those? And there's like five of them here. So I don't know what I was fucking talking about. But I'm surprised that I guess I'm not that surprised that we haven't heard anything about these yet. 
because it seems like most everything is just lost. He mm-hmm. did a great job of making sure everything was lost to time and what he what he built or appropriated is it that's just what it is so i don't know i am curious about his motivation for appropriating a lot of these cultural features was it jealousy or admiration was it a further means of hiding his true identity as rashik and as a terrorist does it really fucking matter at all i don't know yeah right it's it, it's a great question to be asked. It's not one that demands an answer, but it is one that we can kind of like tangentially tie into. And that's something that I really enjoyed about Red Rising and kind of those ideas. Now I think we're at a point of world building and universe building where we can start to talk about those things and, and watch them kind of connect. Right. And so this feels like one of those. Not maybe a direct connection, but enough of like a soft link that we can we can really talk about it. So mm-hmm. yeah. the possibility there, if that makes sense. So from there, from that logbook that I, I love so dearly, uh, we, we move into Vin's perspective and we're back with her shooting through the air and running between buildings again. However, now without her mist cloak, she sneaks into the city easily undetected. She's added some new tricks to quiet herself to her arsenal, including losing the, the mist cloak, coating her coins that she throws in cloth so that it dampens the sound when it hits the stone to propel her forward and upward. And we get a description of the city. Fadrix, unlike how Elland had painted it previously, is actually a very big city. He just has this impression of Luthadel being the biggest thing in the world, so he, he calls it smaller. But also with fat and squat buildings more have to be found on a plateau. I think I described this earlier as kind of like a Pueblo-esque setting is the way that my brain does it. Pueblo mm-hmm. or Middle Eastern. Similar kind of like desert sort of climate yeah. buildings. And that's kind of how I picture it. But mm-hmm. what do you think of this whole picture painted? So... I kind of think of it not so much in actual like physical description, but in size description, much like St. Cloud, where you and I grew up in that. Sure. We think of it as a pretty small town, but somebody who's actually from a small town would probably think of it as a fairly large city. It's in the top, what, five cities in Minnesota? Maybe not quite. Definitely top 10, but I I think it's in the top five. Yeah. The metropolitan yeah. area is definitely in the top five. If you include the Sock Rapids, St. Cloud. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's not Sartell. that small, but it's not big. And like, mm-hmm. I think of it as a, as a small town, but it's like 70,000 people, something like that. St. Cloud and, and similarly, if you come from Minneapolis, you would think that St. Cloud's a small town, you know? Right. Yeah, right. exactly. So, I don't know. I sympathize a little bit perspective. in that. In that yep. perspective, yeah. As far as the mist goes here, something mm-hmm. that I talked about last week, not really realizing that I didn't know what color the mist were. Mm-hmm. It's described here as a swirl of black and white with her really being the black because she's wearing black clothes. But it's a little bit ambiguous. So I'm sure there's other other descriptions in this book and previous saying that like, Mist is white, and I'm just forgetting about it. But it'd be kind of cool if it was like black and white, all just kind of mishmashed together as black and white spaghetti or something. Black and white spaghetti—that's a great, <laughs> great idea and description. You know, I I always give the the mists like a light purple tint in my brain. I think some of that comes from the cover and sort of the artworks, the artwork that I've seen. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, all I'm all I'm taking from this is 
the swirl of white and black, hmm. as it's described. It. And I think the black is Vin and her clothing. But I don't know. I could see it as purple. Yeah, yeah. I, I do understand kind of the swirling effect as it's described. Is it is it in this chapter or is it later where she describes the distance of the mist where it felt like it was inches? I think it's this chapter that she mm-hmm. describes the distance of the mist and probably this little chunk that we're talking about where previously yeah. it felt like it was licking right up against her skin and now it's, it's more of a full away. yeah repulsion mm-hmm. as well yeah yeah that's she also mentions that it was gradual like it wasn't a sudden yes. change yeah right shifted over time yeah i think she might say when that started happening or no it says when she noticed, but she doesn't know when it started happening because it was so gradual. But I don't know. I'd like to know if that was like right when they released Ruin or if it was a slow, gradual process before that or after that or what. That would be question, right. Right. That would be kind of the that's that's the question to answer. And we don't really don't have that yeah. yet. So. Yeah, she she's there in the city, though, to meet informants and has a wonderful conversation with a man named Slow Swift, one of Set's old friends. And I enjoy that the set is painted as this kind of practical poet at heart as well. And in kind of the way that they're these these two have this very like distinct friendship that feels very unique for Set. And you can see him being this like very deep person and being kind of emotional. But he does have this like very practical brutality which you could also put on his sort of his statescraftsmanship and the way that he talks and the way that he presents himself especially in the way that he is kind of a poet so i i really enjoy kind of the that he is almost on this different planet considering his wordplay like we were talking earlier that leads to an excellent exchange in which we really get to see how far our little vin has grown over the past several years in her capability to hold her own as a negotiator against someone too that's a really big deal i think in these scenes too explain and you know give give color i agree completely it's nice to see her come into her own with the sort of wordsmithing and social interactions i think last week i had said something along the lines of she doesn't matter anymore when we were talking about like why we're seeing less of vin in general from perspectives and i think that this scene challenges that a little bit I appreciate that there's still a facet of Vin within this society that she hasn't mastered yet, but it's still adept enough for like it to be interesting to see, you know, mm-hmm. entertaining to to witness it. And it, it almost feels like the inverse of Ellen, who's this like stately, learned, socialite nobleman who's learning to fight and be an alamancer and all all this stuff. And Vin's very much like never been a socialite, never really interacted with people and is very much coming into her own in that respect, but still has a long way to go. And like there, there's balance there. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. She she's she's learning like tact in a way and and he's learning the opposite of that. I want to say like brutality. That's not perfect, but he's he's learning like some form of obviously combat's completely foreign to him and so this is this is a new territory great great point that there are kind of inverses even in this way and that she's really kind of coming into her own yeah did you have any other thoughts on on slow swift in general i i kind of summarized this all into one thing but like there's a lot here that's like a lot just a wise old man 
Yeah, he's fun. He's a fun character. And just the, I don't want to say stereotypical, but kind of, it's kind of cliched that she would to mm-hmm. jump up on the railing and then assume that he doesn't see her. And he's like, nope, one sec. I got to finish my book. Right. I don't know. Didn't expect that to happen, but kind of nice. Yeah. Fun loving dude. Yeah, he he's a great dude. And I really appreciate the the kind of way that he bounces back and forth between kind of his sides, right? As he presents himself, he go he starts off like giving a lot of information about some things, but not really informing Vin with the information that she wants and needs. And it's kind of this like it's a playful negotiation, which is great for Vin to have like a soft negotiation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like she's playing tug of war with a dog as opposed to like a fucking hellhound, which is a great, a great thing to do. Like playing with the dog first is a good move. So, yeah. I don't know. I I like that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. So we also get some information, of course, from our informant on Yeoman. He's a bureaucrat first and foremost and upholding the Lord Ruler's religion as it stood. And I I think that's fascinating in its own right. We kind of talked about the way that these cities divide themselves across those various lines. We've got the people who strictly followed Kelsgren's survivorism and we people who are refusing to, to get rid of the past and kind of maintaining what existed. And as such as maintaining what existed, he's also holding balls as this sign of confidence, of suave, of of being in front of his people more than anything else, I think. Any thoughts on Yeoman and kind of the way that he's presented here? I guess confidence is one way to look at it, but Mm -hmm. I felt like it was more of a means of trying to instill a sense of normality to his constituents. Maybe that's the same thing. When you really boil it down. I know she mentioned like she mentions this later to Ellen. So like obviously I can I can look at it with hindsight and say whatever I want. But when the ball was first brought up, I thought for sure they're totally crashing this ball. Like there was no no sense in my mind that they weren't going to crash this ball as soon as it was like made known to exist. So I'm excited. Yeah, more it's balls. it's kind of cool to have more balls, right? It's 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 a nice like full circle thing where it's like, oh, we're gonna go back to a ball. We'll talk more about that, of course, at the end of this week when we actually like present this to to Ellen, which I think is kind of the fun moment. But it it is a great moment where it's like, oh, we're gonna. That wasn't just like a one off thing inside of that story. That actually mattered in the long run, <laughs> which is kind of cool. Yeah, I, I appreciate mm-hmm. the payoff. I felt like the balls were pretty important even in the first book. Oh, they they were. They were important, but it was like, <laughs> is this a thing for the story or is this a thing for the arc? And it turns out it's a thing for the arc, not just the story at hand. That's fair. So I, I it's it's a subtle thing. It's it's you know, it's Chekhov's gun going off a second time. <laughs> and you knew the gun was in the room at this point because it had already gone off, but you were questioning how much ammo was it was there. It was core enough that I don't know if that counts yeah. because no, it was a big. Right. I, I'm being obtuse. Uh, yeah. Intentionally obtuse. But it was a big point in Vin's character growth from the previous book. Yeah. And right. like her interactions, her entire, the entirety of her interactions with Tindall were like about her being that girl at the ball and whether or not Ellen actually loved her. There's a lot that stems from the balls. So obtusity 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 obtusitism that's definitely not it definitely definitely yeah i i get it i get it but 
I don't know. Okay. I don't know. That's fine. It's acceptable. You don't have to. You don't have to fucking get it. That's not. That's not the point. Point is for you to have flipped the pages and to talk about flipping the pages. Just kidding. It's kind of like getting it is eventually a thing. So <laughs> Vin leaves and double checks her trail to make sure something isn't following her throughout the city. She detects nothing and is on her way to a second informant, a beggar named Hoyd, humming to himself. She hesitates and decides to skip that meeting to verify the information that she's gathered because something bothered her about the situation. Something just clicked in the back of her mind and she didn't like it very much. Upon jumping around the city more to following Seth's instructions, she finds the Canton of Research Headquarters resource, not research, resource, the Canton of Resource Headquarters, undoubtedly where the Lord Ruler's cash would be. So her decision to not go like not continue and like go through with the meeting with the informant goes one of two ways. And both of them are entirely like based on my understanding of my understanding of how Branderson has been writing so far. This is either just him trying to, to establish more concretely that Vin is a person who takes her, like her gut check very seriously. And like have something very explicit to point to that like we're never gonna we're never gonna know what happens or what didn't happen or what could have happened, but we know for sure that she's got like she's got intuitions and she follows them always. Yeah. So it's either that or there's something very explicitly tied to the mist spirit, if that is what was following her, that induces some weird not good feelings in Vin or some some feelings of anxiety or nervousness or something that's that she's reading as bad situation i don't know those are my two theories at this point and i'm i'm not sure it's okay. more both of those are the first one's very much a meta kind of view of why is this here so i don't know does that make sense am i tracking or am I sputtering in incoherently? No, you are you are tracking. You're just talking about different things than I expected, which is okay. okay. And and it's totally okay. I think that it's really important to focus on the misspear in the way that that's kind of like thrumming past, right? And and she, you know, there feels like there is this connection and it feels like there is this kind of secondary thing. And so she's constantly looking for something. And she's always been a I don't love the word paranoid, but she's always been someone who's looking behind her back to kind of like find, find out what's going on with her. So, you know, I, but there was a separation in time between when she noticed the Miss spirit and when this happened at the center of the city. Right. So, right. I think it's plausible that it could be completely divorced from each other. That they but, could be different. Yeah. But at the same time, I find it completely plausible that they are directly connected i think either way it's important to note that vin always heeds her guts warning regardless of if it actually means anything here it's a character trait of hers it's just kind of being force-fed <laughs> if that's the case yeah she force force-fed I me mean, it feels you know right what i mean enough. like it's yeah. the entire yeah, yeah. paragraph like she doesn't yep. know if anything's gonna happen and she'll never know but she doesn't feel good about it so she's not gonna go there Right. <laughs> it's just kind of like, well, I don't know. So so I guess it's more of a question of whether or not it was just to establish that about her as like a very concrete part of her character. 
Mm -hmm. or if there's something outside of that character building or character defining paragraph that is actually pointing to something supernatural that's causing her to have these feelings. Right. Or both. I think it might be, it could be both. I mean, I, there, I think that's something that's going to be sorted out in the future. Probably. Uh, PJ. But I, I think the Miss Spirit is actually a core mystery. And that's what's so funny. I'm about setting this up a rule. What's the rule? <laughs> Whenever I raffo you, you're drinking. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fun. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. We both do. We both do. Whenever we, we had a raffo, that feels fair. Cause I was going <laughs> to say, otherwise I can just raffo you all the time. Right. I would only do it when it's relevant, though, because I'd be held accountable by our listeners. So, like, I wouldn't do it mm-hmm. if it wasn't right. But as such, drink. That said, the Miss Spirit, I think, is a fascinating thing that links these two stories together really well. Because we really don't know. Like, we we have a vague idea of the Miss Spirit of the Well of Ascension. But <laughs> that didn't <laughs> doesn't give us any information, right? Like, yeah. And now we're, now we're left with questions of intention and everything else. So... Is this where they, I think it might be the last chapter where they have the conversation. It's the last chapter where they talk about the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. We'll we'll get there, but we've broken a lot of that ground already here. So Mm. we'll definitely talk more specifically when we get there a little bit more. So Vin, like we were saying, feels herself being followed while inspecting the cache itself and going through, feeling a faint thumping behind her of alamancy she runs and runs and runs until she launches herself backwards using a push and the alamantic pulse behind her disappears as she thrusts through what likely should have been an alamancer that was there who could have dropped off or jumped somewhere else or done something else but she can't find the other alamancer and something occurs to her before the chapter closes could it have been that miss spirit could it have been i mean I don't think it's any surprise that I think so. <laughs> I mean, I'm I feel like I made it pretty clear so, given the rest of our conversation. Yeah, right. So do you we'll we'll hold on the malevolent question until we get to the end. But, you know, is it malevolent? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad All thing? Right. All right. How about this? We're gonna, we'll talk about it at the end. I think or, it's a miss spirit. Oh, all right. I don't know if it's the what the one. fuck does that mean? <laughs> we'll get there. I Are guess. there multiple? All right. Or is there just one? Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. intense of miss spirit being important or some such yeah all right fuck you pj we're gonna move on chapter 28 this log book is long af long book of the notes. long book right hop to the chapter come on all right one final aspect of the Lord Ruler's cultural manipulation is quite interesting, that of technology. I've already mentioned that Rashik chose to use Kalini architecture, which allowed him to construct large structures and gave him the civil engineering necessary to build a city as large as Luthadel. In other areas, however, he suppressed technological advancements. Gunpowder, for instance, was so frowned upon by Rashik that knowledge of its use disappeared almost as quickly as the knowledge of the terrorist religion. Apparently, Rashik found it alarming that armed with gunpowder weapons, even the most common of men could be nearly as effective as archers with years of training. And so he favored archers. The more training-dependent military technology was, the less likely it was that the peasant population would be able to rise up and resist him. Indeed, Scar revolts always failed, in part, for this very reason. I have a lot of comments, and I think I'm going to leave them out of this podcast. Did we talk about technology or technological advancements during Mistborn, during the Final Empire, and how they were I think suppressed? we talked about technology state, like where they were at, technological advancement-wise. We, we tried to like pin down where the society was. 
I just feel like we had a conversation about it not progressing from the time of like f- for the entirety of the Lord Ruler's rule. And I can't remember if that was textual or if it was just us talking. I think it was just a conversation that it seemed like okay. it was frozen in time almost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I totally believe that it I could I could totally believe that it was mentioned at one point offhanded. It might have been. Um, it might have been. Yeah. Either way. It's kind of wild. And it makes me kind of wonder the motivations of the Lord Ruler at a, at a certain hmm. extent, or like to a certain extent, if he was just stalling, like if the entire idea was him stalling for time until someone else could take the mantle and like kill Ruin, like destroy Ruin. And like he knows right now it's stable. So if I don't let anything change for a thousand years, someone can do this. Or... Ideally, he could do this, which is more yeah. likely what he was thinking. Like, if he just basically freezes technology and society advancements in time for a millennia, he'll be able to take care of ruin once and for all, and then like everything goes happy go lucky. Like, I think, I think that's his plan at this point, based on like what we've read so far. That I mean, and that makes reasonable sense from the Lord Ruler's perspective, right? Like the idea that freeze time, wait for either like a, a maybe a real hero of ages quote to show up because he knows the original religion or himself believing that he is the hero of ages step in. I don't I don't necessarily think that this has anything to do with the idea of the hero of ages. I think he's seen past that. I think he's seen that like these prophecies are being toyed with and like don't actually matter to the T but maybe understands that he could take the power again once it comes back in a thousand years right and he knows exactly what he has to do with it so fucking stall yeah fair point fair point and he also he also has the skill of wielding the power too which is another thing another reason to fucking stall yeah and you know I, I think the other reason for the technological advancement infringement if you want to think about it that way is it's more control for alamancers the the more that he is able to degrade the abilities of regular people and hold them back so they don't have that accessibility the more powerful alamancers are so it leads to his chosen people being the chosen leaders naturally yeah i suppose it's anti-rebellion yeah it's true but he doesn't have any personal gain on it so, like, what's his actual motivation? What do you mean? What's his personal gain? His personal gain is that he can subjugate people. But he doesn't get any pleasure from that. We know that from, like, interacting well, with him. He doesn't get any pleasure, but it makes everyone survive, live longer. Exactly. Like, so, I, I feel like it has less to do with his chosen people or what he actually wants and more to do with, like, the more and more I'm learning about this, and maybe I sound like Ellen or says it at this point. But the more that I'm learning about this, the more it feels very intentional and just deprived of feeling and very much just what gets us to the end game as effectively as possible with like the least risk of fumbling the ball. I I agree. I think I think that's what he's going for. I I don't disagree with you. I I think that that's entirely what the Lord Ruler is going for. But I, I think... I guess I'm hazarding a question of why you're d- 
disagreeing on why he would keep that out of the hands like so i i guess the way that you described it felt yeah like he had a preference towards these people like he he was choosing them over the other people and it, it felt to me it feels more well he's choose he chose his alamancers and he chose the noblemen to be the smarter right. people right and so he wants to keep the guns out of the hands of the the oppressed class in theory here okay but framing it that, that way that, that was that makes more yeah sense. that was that was my argument a, but yeah that makes total sense and i'm with you yeah i from the book's perspective what i was trying to, to push back it. on was the idea that he specifically said fuck these people and these people rule oh no yeah right not not on like quite a personal explicitly level. not yeah no, no no he doesn't care that much about anything i think and that's why he's so numb to it when we get to him at the end of the final empire too yeah. like he's just like fuck this like that guy doesn't fucking matter just fucking get rid of him give me the next one i don't care i don't care we're really close to the well opening up again i'm gonna be able to fix the world again i'm gonna get rid of the ash mounts everyone's gonna be happier it's gonna be good we're gonna have flowers do you guys remember flowers no you don't because only i fucking do like that would be the whole internal rant of the Lord Ruler. That's all I'm. That sort of style of thought process is all I'm going on. Like with the Lord Ruler, it right. It seems so outside of the realm of malice at this point for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there's nothing but uh, almost initial malice that led to truly. Like I, I believe that. Rashik was a flawed person in the beginning and he put those flaws into the system and in post spending a thousand years living among those flaws realized that that was fucked up probably and was probably going to fix that one assumes just a guess a guess out of madman's thoughts imagine so they they talk about how the logbook talked about how Mm -hmm. Rashik holding the power of the well for a couple minutes right i think it was a couple minutes yeah felt like an unlimited amount of time and like in that time he grew from an infant to like a wise old man mm-hmm. imagine stewing on that feeling for a century <laughs> and then like he'd be approaching that that power he's, again he's two years with away. experience yeah like he has experience then so he'd be starting with the wisdom and he could fix fucking everything confidently and probably would succeed given how much he was able to like damage control in the couple minutes that he fucked everything up. Like he could go back and fix everything because he knows what he's, he knows what he's doing already. Right. Right. And some bastard ska girl goes and, fucks it all up let's be let's be fair it was kelsier's fault once again we just have to clarify <laughs> this is kelsier's fault not Vince. he took care of kelsier he stabbed him in the chest but kelsier ultimately got the ska girl that eventually killed the lord ruler to follow and blah 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 it's kelsier's fault which is ruin's fault we're back full circle we're good Okay. We have a lot of this chapter to talk about yet. I love yeah, that conversation, though, because I think it is, it, it's a fascinating part of this book, is questioning the backbone of this world and the way that the power functions and the way that everything else goes. It's some, it's some of the most fun, fascinating conversation that you can have inside of this world. All right. I'm on Lord Ruler's side now. But you got to admit, <laughs> fucked up, though. 
fucked yeah, up. Yeah, but I'm thinking about it from the terms of him Ellen's looking at terms. an ant farm in in the most like cliched way. He's looking at a at a at an ant farm. He's looking at ants, and he, yes, he can't get your shitty ant concern himself out of this. with. He can't concern himself with the feelings of ants because he needs to make sure the ant farm survives. How dare you? All right, we're moving on. So, Ellen, <laughs> share a conversation about the Miss Spirit and how comfortable they should be with it, considering it stabbed him at the Well of Ascension. But ultimately, that seems to have been for the right reason, considering it was tr- trying to prevent that release of Ruin. For some reason, I thought these chapters were flipped in my head. Otherwise, I would have just rolled into it. But, mm-hmm. um. Sorry, you you threw me off with the with that last comment, but this uh, for is, some this reason is the, I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the comment like he stabbed me, right? right. Yep, like he stabbed me. But Vin's like, nah, he was being nice. He was he was trying to he was trying, <laughs> trying to, to save the world. I don't know. It, it would have been a super like it's a, it was a super aggressive move. But it, what else would have swayed Vin's decision? Like, can you think of anything else that the mist spirit, assuming that this is what, like, that Vin's version of this story is what actually happened? Is there anything that the mist spirit could have done to persuade her to do something other than release ruin? I mean, in the moment, no, that was the only move. And the mist spirit had tried very hard before that to correct for things mm-hmm. right in in the form of moderating and editing the journal and and other components that were kind of like stabbed out so yeah quite frankly yeah. i think choosing ellen to stab worked against him or against the misspirit whatever it is because ellen had that conversation with vin very explicitly but if ellen so, were alive i think she would have had a very easy time releasing the power too I think because no, but, of the but prophecy. But if someone, if, some, if someone else was stabbed, like if Sazed was stabbed or something. Mm. Or I everybody. still don't think so. I think, I, I think, I truly believe that Ellen was the best shot. Yeah, it was, but I, they, I, had, I they had literally just had yeah. that conversation that like right. she had to hold true to. Yep. And she didn't have that with other people. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like she would. I feel like she would have stabbed. I feel like she would have been okay with Sazed dying there on the floor if necessary. She wouldn't. She she's a cold hearted bastard. She would have just let him die. Laughed about it. I don't know about that, but I do think there's a chance. Yeah, that you're right. She probably wouldn't have laughed, but no, no. But you're Ruin right. Ruin would have though. He would have been like. Fuck, I tried. I'll get you in a thousand years. I'll get you next time. <laughs> Catch you on the flip side. Yeah. One thousand years won't make a difference. Bring out my chain smoker voice. I imagine Ruin <sighs> as that, that big ghost from Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> what was his name? Are you talking about the green one or are you talking about the... Yeah, I think so. Switch to the G. It's like gold. I got this. I got this. Slimer. I'm fucked up. Yeah, that sounds more like it. Yeah, it's Slimer. <laughs> the Green Glarm. Ghost. The, it's like it, it starts with a G. It's not, he, is, he is referred to as the Green Ghost a couple of times, so I'm not that far off. But <laughs> The Green Ghost is not close to Glorp. He's also re- referred to as the Gooper Ghost, so fuck you. <laughs> He's not Glorp, though. 
Yeah, it's a fair point. It's like a wet, uh, moist sound. Maybe, he's, maybe he makes that noise. But okay, man, we got to get through the rest of this. We got to get. We got to keep going. <laughs> it's midnight. Vin surmises. Yeah, it's for midnight you. for you. Vin surmises from her conversations and assumptions throughout the past couple of books that she is the hero of ages. She fits all the signs and destiny of the universe at large. So it seems Ellen comes to realize something, though, that is more pressing than anything else. She doesn't need another believer or someone to praise her in other ways. He just needs to be a good husband first. I think it's important to mention that this entire chapter is from Ellen's perspective. And so this is kind of a great thing to finally have them bouncing off of each other in these relationship moments, as opposed to having an intermediary like Sazed's perspective kind of stand in the middle. I really appreciate that here. Yeah, I feel like like Vin is being a little bit cheeky here. Mm-hmm. And I think that I don't think she actually believes that she is or ever was the hero of ages anymore. But I think it's in her best interest to make Ruin believe that she thinks that. So by saying that out loud and talking to Ellen like this, that gets that idea to Ruin that that's something that he can fuck with a little bit. But I don't think she sees herself as a prophesized, like, hero anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. It feels like subterfuge, knowing it that does. her wire is tapped. Right. There's a bit of that. There's, yeah. Hmm. And I, I, do, I do feel like, to, to your beginning point in this, I do feel like she is kind of playing it for humor. Like, she is kind of being a little bit, there's, there's an element of comedy to to like what she's saying or like kind of self-doubtism um hmm. i didn't get a whole lot of like comedy to it and i think yeah, the core of her point is still true mm-hmm. but using the term hero of ages i think is something that hasn't been mentioned in a long time and is right. explicitly mentioned as a way of like tricking ruin into thinking that she is more feels more self-important than she really does she's baiting him right it is a little bit baity Hmm. just trying to see how long i could go to make you uncomfortable i think that that was a great final way to end that point and i was i was just trying to see if i could make you break you didn't break good work so (laughs) i i love that we get in this moment here like trust explicitly right And action has to speak louder than words because of the restrictions that are placed on us by ruin. Words can literally be twisted on people as you can hear them and then twist them and use them to manipulate events that are going to happen because he understands the plans. So Vin says to Ellen, Ellen, do you know why I finally agreed to marry you? Because I realized that you trusted me. And that means so much more in these moments that that come because. She has this fully grounded and Ellen has this fully grounded perspective of I need you to believe that we're fighting on the same side, same cause, because we have been this whole time. And it, it just it it feels like the relationship is whole in a great way. Yeah, absolutely. We don't get much tenderness in this book at all. So this so mo- this this moment felt really, really good. Yeah, mm-hmm. so far. You're right. But yeah, this it's sweet Warmed my heart a little bit. It was. Mm-hmm. sweet. Yeah. I, I do agree with you. It, it's it's a great moment for a number of reasons, the way that they kind of go back and forth and and talk about this. I think it's really wonderful. Yeah. It it does have this sort of 
You know, we, we talked about this previously, and I, I kind of want to bring it up here, that there's this sense of like a complete arc for these two already before this book kind of begins, right? But there is an internal relationship arc that is has mostly undergone most of its twists and turns at this point as well. We're kind of seeing the culmination. But sometimes living in the culmination of a character's arc can be great. And I think that this is done as well as it could be, if that makes sense. Like, I, I don't... Often you want to see characters, like, grow and change and develop. Like, that's what you're in for with the story. You want to see the plot impact the characters and make them make choices. But here... They've made so many choices in the past and they've figured so many things out that now they feel so solid that acknowledging these things and acknowledging the changes that they've made feels like growth enough in its own that we don't need an arc necessarily. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's an odd position to be in because I don't think it always works out this well. I think often actually it's a lot. It's poorly played and this somehow feels validating and good because we haven't seen it and like i don't know i don't know mm-hmm. i don't know how to pick it apart properly that's fair hmm. neither do i well fine they talk about how necessary the city is to keep everyone alive of course as they need the seeds and food stored here in order to help everyone through planting the food in central do- central dominance beyond just the necessity for the hope of ATM or the final clue hidden within. And Ellen comes to realize that he'd prefer to try diplomacy. And Vin gives him the perfect in. The balls. The balls. Saying the balls just like <laughs> doesn't feel right. Because obviously the context is very different. But also when you put it in a in, sentence. In the balls. In the balls. Is, I know. Is what you said. I, I wrote it that way. I stared at it and I was like. I have to put in in quotes, right? And I put it in quotes and I was like, in air quote, <laughs> balls. But, um, oh my God, Crossland. She doesn't have a dress. She's got oh nothing no. to wear. What's she going to do? What's she going to do? What are you? Uh, is that, oh is that, are, are you, are you panicking? Cause I'm panicking. Are you panicking? I'm panicking. Absolutely. I'm terrified. I am absolutely mm-hmm. terrified. This is, I'd go to a, a ball on this motherfucker. I'm wearing, you go to a ball on that? With your raccoon eyes? Maybe. <laughs> you just like one eye. Do you eye like how bleeped? my eyes are like <laughs> turning bright red? <laughs> Dude, mine are like dark <laughs> engraved circles. I, I'm very thankful for the show because I'm almost always laughing and I'm developing crow's feet because of that. Right along that. That sad soppy tear. But I do. I do love what we do. That sad. Of course. It's it's crazy that we're going to see them go to the ball. We we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but I'm very excited to kind of reemerge and see that see those moments again. Mm-hmm. Me too. Cool. With that, we go to chapter 29, and we have another long book. It's not as long as the other ones, but the Lord Ruler didn't just forbid certain technologies. He suppressed technological advancement completely. It seems odd now that during the entirety of the thousand-year reign, very little progress was made. Farming techniques, architectural methods, even fashion remained remarkably stable during the Lord Ruler's reign. He constructed his perfect empire, then tried to make it stay that way. For the most part, he was successful. Pocket watches, another Kalini appropriation, that were made in the 10th century of the empire were nearly identical to those made during the first. Everything stayed the same until it all collapsed, of course. 
so this is this evokes very much the same thoughts as the previous one, with the one exception that we kind of get to see a little bit of a bias from the writer of this logbook. And just kind of falling in the line with Ellen as well, of this Lord Ruler sympathy. Not quite as directly, but more of a technical evaluation of the Lord Ruler's rule and like its merits. But still, but the tone is shifting, certainly. Yeah, definitely. As as we approach kind of the we're not quite at the halfway point, but we're at like the third point. The tone of the logbook is shifting a little bit, I think. As we start to think about the story and the story as a whole has has a long way to go and a lot of parts yet to to play. So, yeah, yeah this this feels like we very much covered a lot of this in the last section. So not going to dwell on this for too long. I think we can move forward. Gordel says it and Gordel says it breeze and Alrian make their way to her toe and note the empty rivers and the overall state of the city before making their way in upon Quellian's request. When they get in, finally, Quellian has a conversation with Sazed about the definition of what a tyrant is and how war is an excuse for tyrants. And Sazed comes to realize that all of the noblemen in the city have been killed in accordance with the survivor's wishes. Heavy air quotes there, yeah. but... I don't know, though. Here's the thing. We've... What I find most interesting about this exchange explicitly is that Sazed admits that he never once heard Kelsier talk about peace after the rebellion. It's a strangely good argument for me for the idea of what Kelsier would have wanted has been twisted by everyone, not just like the church and not just Quellian, but his own friends and his own crew. Like his words have been twisted to like push forward what they think the world should be like after this. When in reality, it's not actually based on anything he said. I'm not sure I totally buy it, but I can see, like, I can, I can entertain that argument and be okay with that as an explanation that like he didn't have a plan going forward and everyone else is extrapolating, including his own team. And, and that feels Feels like a reasonable approach, but I, I feel like Quellian also gives off a sense of like absolute desperation. Like there's a lot of he's holding on to power simply through fear, it seems. And and not simply, not entirely, because there is some from from the purely ska folks, there is of course this uplifting hope of being free and everything else, and like punishing those who punish them, even if they're mostly themselves so there is kind of a question of when that goodwill might run dry i think but like when what does quelling do when he runs out of people to burn i don't know yeah we're not in charge of answering that question thank you <laughs> but that is a question to be posed you know that is and yeah. and they haven't they meaning breeze and crew haven't recognized yet that quelling is burning people they just assume that he's burning goods Right. And like wealthy items and things like that in these houses. Not that there's people inside. That's true. Though Sazed knows that he's killing people. He knew that he killed all the noblemen. I'm saying past yeah. the... I, I meant past the noblemen, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. He knew that he killed the noblemen. Everyone in the room knows that. But I, I'm, I'm saying the continued executions of anyone right. who's half or anyone who's otherwise. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That's and then fair. we move on... Sorry, go ahead. 
I said that's fair. Yeah. So from there, we move on to Breeze in the room and the way that Quillian kind of is addressing him and the subtle touch on the emotions of all those in the room there with them. He treats, he being Quillian, treats this very much like an early Protestant would witchcraft, calling it the black tool of nobility, speaking of allomancy as such. And it just gives, it's just like the old fools of the past, right? Like Quillian is easily manipulated into believing lies about what allomancy can do. And is left questioning why he said what he said, despite this not being something that, you know, Breeze had any control over. It's just mind games and some clever fuckery. You know what I mean? Like I, I just... I love, I love the way that this is brought up to make like Quellian into a really big fool. I don't know about that at all. I think Quellian completely understands what soothing is really like. I, I even think he's potentially a misborn based on our conversation last week. And I think he's intentionally putting himself into this position where he seems like he's on the back foot as a means of letting the crew underestimate him. But he's an Alamancer at the very least, and has surrounded himself with other Alamancers. I don't think it's, I don't think it's far-fetched to say that he understands exactly how soothing and rioting works and is kind of leaning into their bluff. That's, that's actually a good point. Um, especially as we think about the way that this is presented, right? It's presented from Sacid's perspective. And he says, now the citizen would spend the rest of the meeting wondering if his words were being guided by Breeze. And that doesn't right. mes- necessarily mean that that's what the citizen thinks. It's just what says its implications of what Breeze had done is. Right. That's so, a good point. Yeah. 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 So it's not entirely, it's not a holistic approach mm-hmm. solution. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair point. Maybe he does know. Maybe he knows more than he's saying because he's trying to play dumb because we've seen from other perspectives that he has more abilities. Yeah. Yeah. At least coin shot. Mhm. Which what's the technical term for that? A coin shot. That is the technical term. So that's not the same level as thug versus pewter. That arm? is the same term as thug. Yes. Or pewter arm, same idea. It's just Thug has two. Coinshot feels like on par with Thug, and you'd think there'd be another like nope less. All right, but pulling Fuck. is lurcher, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that's that's what it is. Coinshot. Okay. So there there is a bit of an irony in the fact that Sazed is dismissed from the room with someone with such a powerful faith in the survivor like the fact that this is kind of this pronouncement and like how dare you not believe in in just this idea that like the survivor guides us despite Sazed having personally known that scoundrel feels like a deep deep irony to me that I really enjoy yeah i mean but also this the this is that also, the citizen knows that Sazed knew him. Like, yeah. It's ironic, but it's intentional. Like, I think it's an intentional slight on the citizen's part. I'm not saying that it's not intentional. I'm just saying, okay. I'm speaking more from the pronouncement from a religious perspective in addition to the slight on what the, what the survivor actually wanted, right? Like, here yeah. you are shouting down this guy using a religion who is like the religious manifold to some degree of whom is obviously away from that inside of the story so far. And then on top of that, 
the way that you're shoving it down his throat is with a man that he knew. Like, yeah, that's that is very direct and intentional on the citizens' part. I don't want to downplay that. Outside of the sort of perspective of him being the religious scholar, because I don't, I doubt that that's well known. But that's fair. That's a good point. Yeah. So that's where I get my delicious, delicious irony from is from all those different angles on that that little accusation. Yeah. yeah. But then they run into Spook, and man, there's a lot that happens here between the group of them commenting on how the boy has grown and changed while they make their way into the ministry offices. Spook wanting to have a discussion about religion with Says another is another fascinating moment that gets tucked into this chapter where he asks him to talk about the things of gods and men. And it feels so mature for our little boy. And I say our little boy because Ellen's our boy, you know. Right. Our other boy. What's, what's our other boy? Chris? Our other boy. Fine. Our our sad boy. Our sad boy. Yes. <laughs> I don't think if you had asked me last week, I don't think there would have been any conceivable situation where I would have wished that we hadn't gotten any perspective from Spook up until this point. But that's absolutely the feeling that I'm in right now, because imagine this interaction with Spook having no idea what's going on and just having to, like, parse through all the information that says it is giving us about, like, how is he able to see all that? What's up with that blindfold? He seems strong. We lose dramatic irony. Out? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do lose we dramatic do. irony. Yeah. But I don't Rather, think we the lose dramatic irony. We actually have dramatic here. irony. Excuse me. We are currently dramatically ironic because right. we understand and the character doesn't. But mm-hmm. to your point, it would be better if we didn't. I think. I think it'd yeah. be. I think it'd be fun and like really kind of shocking if we didn't. Like it I would wonder add a good if layer this is actually spook. Yeah, I'm sure. Like I. I wish I would have put together some predictions of what I think I would have thought had I not <laughs> known anything from Spook. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have been too hard to do, though. I have a tenuous grasp on my predictions as it, as it is. <laughs> Giving myself and yeah. taking hindsight away from myself wouldn't have right. worked well. Right. <laughs> I, I would agree with that, although I do like your positing of the couple of questions that you had, right? Like, there's there's a couple of good ones in there. Like, the idea mm-hmm. of, like... Well, what's why does Spook Spook is working out now? Like he's very strong. Like why is he wearing? The, what's up with the blind? The blindfold's really weird. Is he? Does he seem okay? He seems really confident in a weird way, and I'm not sure. <laughs> Spook is never confident. I like that. Sazed literally just says, "Maybe he's training with weights." <laughs> you lift, bro. Yeah, basically, it's it's super good. Yeah, without like throwing a meme in there, so. Uh, it's clever enough mm-hmm. oh man yeah so to end the conversation of this chapter of course when they begin to search and explore the cavern they talk about a start starting a rebellion against the rebellion that overtook the city of course and they find what this cache specializes in and where all the water from the street slots is gone i don't even know what to do with this information dude <laughs> like what did the lord ruler think was gonna happen now are people gonna go like grab buckets of water and bring them up or are they gonna like just have a beach party underground like hey man come down got this sweet watering hole we can build some sand castles we can go water skiing maybe we go snorkeling i don't know like 
What are they going to do with all this fucking water underground? How are they going to get it up? What are they going to do? I guess yeah. a pump? I don't know. To to me, the tenuous thing here, like, or the, the thing to think about is the, the fact that everything, all of these five, like, caches are spread out from each other. And if they each have one critical resource, how the fuck are you going to bring them all together? How are you going to move the fucking water, though, is the worst part. Everything else feels like it can be stacked, carried. You know, there, there are some things that can be moved. Seeds, plants, food, canned food, whatever. Like, you can move most of the rest of that shit. A fucking reservoir of you have to move everything to the water. That's the thing. You have to move everything to the water. So you'd think that you'd put the reservoir of water in Luthadel, probably, because it's central. Or, or the city's way more important than we first thought. Ah. Okay. And the the city should move here. Could be. That's that's a thought. That's, I don't know. Cool. And maybe the Lord Ruler just liked underground snorkeling. Yeah, you like who doesn't like an underground pool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I'm down. I'm down. All right. Well, with that, we have the final thing. Did you have any other notes on uh, on this week? Anything else you wanted to bring up? You know, I figured we'd talk for another hour and a half or so about the water. This next logbook. You know, in in my heart of hearts, I was like, we're going to try to keep this concise. So, our logbook going into next week. Originally, Men assumed that Rashik's persecution of the terrorist religion came from hatred. Yet now we know that Rashik was himself a terrorist man. His destruction of that religion seems odd. I suspect that it had something to do with the prophecies about the Hero of Ages. Rashik knew that preservation's power would eventually return to the Well of Ascension if the terrorist religion had been allowed to survive. Then perhaps, someday, a person would find their way to the Well and take up the power, then use it to defeat Rashik and overthrow his empire. So, he obscured the knowledge of the hero and what he was supposed to do, hoping to keep the secret of the well to himself. So, a couple things there. First of all, this just greater expands the idea of everything being done for the greater good and kind of maybe makes it less egregious that he was suppressing and killing his own people. It's still terrible. It's an apologist's perspective, yeah. Anyway, this seems to confirm that Lord Ruler got Perseverance's power from the well. And I can't remember if we had that confirmation before, but at the very least, it means that whatever Vin took was dumb. And it also means that maybe we're not on a thousand-year clock before the next Hero of Ages who wrote this logbook can take the power again and that's kind of that's that's a a posit i guess from from this whole thing is the idea that someone else could pick it up but really but what he, it means is either someone's picking it up soon or mm-hmm. one of our main characters is going to live for the next thousand years yeah yeah there there is there is that mm-hmm. but but the well has already been picked up the well is gone that well mm. that's not necessarily the well of ascension in capitals it's a different well the well of ruin the well mm. of dissension what's, sure what's sure. the opposite of ascension i mean dissension is so yeah the well Think of the elevator going records. down right ascension descension 
The well of de-escalation. I mean, I feel like the well of ruination is way cooler than either of those, but we'll we'll just like we'll we'll let it sit. We'll let it we'll let it sit in your brain. Cool. All right. Well that's PJ, that's where we end the show for the week. We don't have any predictions to pay off this week, as I dug through those, so nothing there. We do have some new ones, of course, that we're going to be adding from this week, which is great. With that, we move into next week. Next week, we're going to be reading chapters 30 through 36. Again, that is 30 through 36. So we are going to be entering part three next week. Isn't crazy? We're already in that third part. It is crazy. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. This this book's only 11 episodes. So we are approaching the halfway point. We're, we'll cross it relatively soon. So mm-hmm. while you're here. Basically. Yeah. 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 So. That's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as ever, to Tim and Andrew for helping us keep our show going. You can check out the links in our show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, websites, social media, all in one very convenient location. We also want to take a second today to thank our new bartender patron, Legacy Holler. Mahler, Brawler, Legacy Holler. Very, very glad to have you on board listening to all the Atomic Pylon shows and whatnot that are coming out. A little bit ahead of schedule. We're very, very glad to have you. Just so you With- know how on track Crossland and I are throughout recording the episodes, <laughs> this person joined while we were recording. <laughs> yes. We notes. Yeah, we threw it in the notes from the moment that that happened. I messaged him and asked which name, and he said the same Discord name. So that's what we've gone with, all within the same episode. So feel free to ping us at whatever time. Join our Patreon whenever you want. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. If you want to find us on Twitter, like PJ had mentioned, uh, Instagram, Reddit, or Facebook, words, whiskey, pod if you want to reach out to us and you have any comments questions concerns thoughts things you want to share with us words and whiskey show gmail.com is the place to do that we also have t-shirts on t public you can follow our link you can check out all of the other shows that we're launching on atomic pylon as well through the links it's really really crazy this last week we launched our brand new show tales of kana which is this huge D&D live play show with with some audio edits and things going back over it that is just a fantastic show if you're in for a little bit of fiction, a little bit of role playing and a lot of improv and some demanding dice as it were. So it's Bad it's dice. a good time. Highly recommend it. There are two episodes that you can go listen to and we release bi-weekly, so every other week. Yeah, I think that's about it. That's everything that we thing. got to talk about. Oh. Our launchers giveaway is still going on. You have another week to enter. That's true. Get in sooner rather than later. We're going to be talking about that relatively soon by the end of the month. So get in when you're leather bound to launchers. All you have to do is go join our Patreon or go to Instagram or Facebook, comment, like, follow on those posts. Really important for us to continue to grow. And we, we really appreciate all of you. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs>